Welcome to It Can Be Said. My name is Will Calling, and we're joined once again by the one, the only, Dr. Luke Middup. How are you today, Luke? Enjoying the very restful weekend, it has to be said. That's good. Cause <laughs> I, were, were, you, were you enjoying a restful weekend last week, Luke? No, not really. Did the Antichrist get promoted to the Premier League? They did. They did. They did. How 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 do you feel about what may be the darkest week in football? You know, you know, you know, you, you know, you know what's been really interesting? The number of people I used to go to school and college with all of a sudden have contacted me on Facebook and Twitter to rub my nose in this. I haven't spoken to them, I haven't spoken to them in 20 odd years, but they remembered I was a Nuts fan and they weren't. <laughs> I think the thing is, Luke, the one consolation you can take from that is no matter how bad things have been for Knox County, and they've been pretty bad, things have been so bad for Forrest, it's taken them 20 years to get in touch with you to gloat. Yes, quite. I did, one... quite I, did, I did point that out in somewhat more robust language. The, um, the one I, like, this is one of these interesting things where the, those things you know that you don't know, because obviously it's not County and it's Nottingham Forest, and even when you're even when you're um, um, like trying to shorten the Nottingham Forest, there's a way of doing it where you like you do like an apostrophe mid, in the middle of the half, so it's like yeah. not ham. Um, but I had never realised, or like I never like intellectualised that Notts is for the county and Notts cannot be used for the city. And even though Nottingham Forest is called Nottingham Forest, which Forest is not in the city by definition, no. even though their ground, called the city ground, is not in the borders of the city, it's in a neighbouring uh, district, a neighbouring ward even. Um, yeah, Forest is the city team, and Notts County is the county team, which again, I knew. I just didn't realise there was this kind of... Yeah. Thought Barry Which is why the contraction Knott's Forest is completely unacceptable, Barry Glendening. No, no, that's what he, he was arguing with people saying that. Like, he was telling people you cannot say <laughs> Knott's Forest. So no, you he's... can't. But I never kind of put two and two together to get four. Anyway, also on the line, listening to this witty banter, it's Simon Alvey. How are you today, Simon? I am good. I am fine. As as someone who doesn't have a particular dog in the into Nottingham fight, but did obviously like like all of us live in the city for several years. I was just quite I was quietly happy that Nottingham Forest got promoted because, you know, I, I like I, I I'm I'm an outsider and I'm an outsider and therefore like I'm I'm one of these appalling, you know, why yeah. can't both sides have a nice time? Well, the one thing is, is that the owner is a bit of a crook. This is true. Yeah, I, I heard. Yes, but I mean, let's be clear about this. Their greatest ever manager was also quite a, was a, also a bit of a crook. So you know, I also talking of Ryan Clough, I got congratulated for 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 good trolling on Twitter this week. Not not bizarrely, amongst the many people who I talked to in Luke's replies, are you ever going to comment on the EU ever again, Luke? No, 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 I'm not. I never have I mean, been called an idiot in so many inventive ways. How, how, also, has taken, how has it taken you this long to realise that commenting about the EU and, on Twitter and also, and also, is a and bad also, call? Like, like the Churchill quote about a fanatic being somebody who won't change their mind and won't change the subject has never been more apt. Now, now, 
you, obviously, so for those who don't know, Luke, Luke basically said to somebody who was talking about all the downsides of Brexit, hey, we got self-government and democracy, that's something. And this is when people started calling you an idiot. Now, Luke, as your friend and a fellow Brexiteer, yeah, you decided to get on the you decided to get on that Twitter thread and make things about ten thousand times worse. I did, and it was really, really fun. You know, you, you know, just just to give you an idea, just to give you an idea of this, listeners. Basically, imagine that episode of The Simpsons where they go into Shelbyville to recover the lemon tree. I was Martin Prince. Will was Nelson Muntz. <laughs> the best one was when I went to somebody you think Spitzing Canada is what is what you put on a sauerkraut. Anyway, happy platy jubes, guys. Well no, before we get on to platy jubes. Before we get on to platy jubes, I was called a troll for saying that Boris the football manager Boris Johnson most resembles. Is Brian Clough. Yeah. Which, you know, Brian Clough obviously a firm socialist, but he was somebody that um, struggled to control, that was very reliant on his deputies, struggled to uh, keep at bay his self-destructive instincts, and the mainstream media played a big part in making him a star, you know? Do you, do you think Boris Johnson will haggle to keep the car when he leaves down the street? Well, Yes. But I think they get that anyway. But yes, it, that's if he, true, actually, if he didn't, he w- he would haggle. Yeah. Um, I did see someone who I I I think maybe when Stephen Bush, I think come up with the actually a better one, which is he's Roberto Di Matteo, Di Matteo yeah. even. Um, based on you know doing well it doing well in Europe, <clears throat> but never quite doing it um in the league. Did, did they did they also point out that he, he had a shady Russian overlord? Oh yes, yes, that works. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yes, Simon, as our Londoner, you are you are in London, the epicenter of platy jubes. How yes. platy go to jubes? So, like, this is kind of my incredibly not. This is where I kind of become incredibly boring and normal now long i don't know we don't talk about the monarchy a great deal but my my i've i'm a lifelong republican i would you know i would abolish the monarchy if given the opportunity you know even though the queen seems like a perfectly nice woman you know the same for the same thing uh, you know for the same reason that uh luke luke you know we talked about uh I got 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 annoyed annoyed at people <laughs> for the EU. You know, I believe in I believe in democracy, even even if it means marginally less tourist revenue. But so you know, let's let's begin. I set out my stall. I you know I know that you know it's something that I would that that's something I would campaign for. It's something I believe in, and so you know you would think, oh, I'd be I'd be on the barricades, you know, waving my fist with great anger. No, I've just quietly gone about my day and it's been perfectly possible to have a really nice long weekend and see none of the, you know, Platinum Jubilee action, you know, at all. And I, I this is one of those things I find uh, uh, it, as, a, as someone who has voted, ha, has been a supporter of 
Uh, remaining in the EU, the, AV, uh, the change to AV and the Labour Party, I am used to supporting campaigns that are run deeply in effort, <laughs> but nothing, absolutely nothing, be- beats for sheer political ineptness the campaign to re- the British campaign to abolish the monarchy. I mean, it is a campaign that on Twitter basically went, you know, basically tried to argue that people didn't want a four-day bank holiday and for the pubs to stay open longer. It's like there are so many ways you could do this, but uh, campaigning against people having a really nice time or being snide to people who are, you know going out there and organize that there was something that went around um, twitter earlier in the week which was like there, there was a sort of screenshot oh yeah, like, oh. yeah 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 so the guy I, I i this is the this is the this is the whatsapp group from my like estate and it's terrifying it was just people planning a party like, <laughs> yeah it was some people what's, what's your problem Slightly cringy language, but it was like, oh, should, we should tidy up for the Queen, which, you know, I a little bit, you know, I find, I find it a little bit cringe, but fine. All the other things were like, hey, you know, I'm going to make this this thing, it's going to serve like 15 people. Oh, uh, can we all make sure that we put little flags in that say either vegan or vegetarian or gluten free? It was like, this is exactly how I would want a party to be organised. So now, now, here's the thing, though, like, I think we should be honest about this. You live in a block of flats. I live in a duplex. Luke lives in Scotland. Um, we... and you say that. You say that. Well, there is a there is a big party down. I think it was. It might be tomorrow. There is a big party down on the park. And there's a big park um, down by the big Tesco. Down by the big Asda, and they're having quite a big sort of street party down there. So, you know. But but it, where you live is there one. Yeah, well, I mean, the estate is kind of, you know this, the estate is not really in the middle of anywhere. But yeah, there is one in the village in which I live. Yeah, but just a bit, this is kind of the point I'm going to make is that yeah, there are things we could go and do if we want to do them. I'm sure if I'd looked into it, there's something, there was something going on near me. Yeah. But you don't have, is that suburban, cul-de-sac, uh, street culture where... You know, there is a residence WhatsApp, and there is this kind of thing of there is going to be this party that is definitely going to happen. Because I know both of you, and I know me, um, I couldn't think of anything that would horrify me more than random people <laughs> I don't know knocking on my door saying, it's three o'clock, are you not coming to the party for the Queen? Well, put it this way, you know, in lockdown when everybody else was going outside clapping, I was determinedly not. Yes, yes. And so, like, I do agree that, like, those people sound very bitter and twisted when they're attacking people, organizing a nice party through WhatsApp. But let's not any of the three of us pretend that we are not also bitter and twisted people, because we are. <laughs> it's actually, on, my parents live on an estate like that, and they are, they were, I think they were having a party today, actually. Because there is, there, is there is a couple that live... There is a couple that live opposite my parents. And let's put it this way. They are very community-minded. And particularly, like, the, the, the one that always gets me is every time I go home for Christmas, you come into the estate, you walk around, and there are lights up and everything. But then you get onto my parents' cul-de-sac, and it's like there's probably an extra power station, power in that cul-de-sac, because they turn it into a competition. 
is who can get the best Christmas lights. Can, can I can I can I can I can I offer can I offer a slight <laughs> counterpoint to yeah. Will's? So um I I one of my ways of sort of avoiding, you know, catching any any of this. And from what I can tell, the answer is just don't watch BBC One, which is never a massive sacrifice. Yeah, I'm um, But like well, I've been, you know, bouncing around southern England meeting um, my girlfriend Rachel's parents and then some of her good friends. Her good friends live in a small village near Woking and, you know, on a sort of cul-de-sac, not quite cold, you know, but on a sort of residential street, exactly where you would expect, you know, there to be all this pressure. And there was one, one house that was festooned with exciting bunting and, you know, lots of stuff. And when we went to the pub, that had lots of bunting, to be fair. Um, but I didn't get the sense at all from talking to to the the couple that lived the couple that we were staying with that they were um, you know feeling pressured to sort of join in in with any kind of platinum jubilee thing. My 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 read of a lot of this, to be perfectly honest, is that basically this is an opportunity people are taking to have a bit of a party with friends and family. Uh, the village I grew up in and my parents still live in had a beer festival and they had a, a thing where the scouts lit a bonfire over the stream for reasons that I, that defy understanding. Um, and, you know, they had a beacon lighting and, but I think people just, you know, it's an excuse for a party. I don't, you know, this, I don't, I don't, you know, the world over the last couple of years has been—it's been a rocky couple of years. So any yeah. any excuse for any excuse for a party is a good one. Actually, you know, you were saying about BBC One, Simon. I was asked this—I was asked this question um, a while back, and I couldn't answer it. So I'm going to ask you two: When was the last time you watched live television that wasn't news or sport of any kind? Ooh. Um... Uh, does, does wrestling count as sport? Yeah. yeah. Course, for, the, for this, yes. I just want to make you both say it. Yeah. Um, okay. I mean, I had... Oh, we should also say when you're not stuck in a hotel. Yeah, when you... When you at yes. home. At home. When you have the choice of other platforms. Yes. Yeah. Um, ooh. Uh, oh, um, I think... I think I might... We might have watched about half... No, no. When we watched that, that was that was on all four. Um, when was the last time I watched sort of? Did, I, I suppose BBC Parliament counts as uh, yeah, basically news. basically news. Current, yeah, current, news. current affairs or sport, entertainment. Um, I literally cannot remember. Um, no, that was that was that was that was my response. Like I'm yeah, thinking... I, I, I would be surprised if I've done that this year. Yeah. To be honest. Well, I know I've not done it this year. I'm just trying to think if I've done it any time recently. Because it, I... it, ra- it, it, it raises an interesting question. Because, we, we, you know, we all, remember, we all remember when they turned off analog TV. How long is it going to be before you before you can't add, before you know the entirety of the TV moves to an online format? I would say, quite it will be take a while because I think even now 
we are basically weird because you gotta remember we are still still in the more youthful half of the population and we are also in a more affluent half and we're not much more than a more affluent half most affluent 10 percent uh most likely so you think we're that far up the income district? Yeah, I, I I checked it, and the the income I'm on would be would be in top ten. Wow. Okay. Um. So, I know Bob has an analysis of this and says that VOD uh, viewership is like I can't remember if it's all VOD viewership or it's just the streaming services, but it's around thirty percent. So linear TV is more important than you think. And also, like, I'm thinking about it, and, like, news and sport is primarily what I watch. So, like, yeah, it's, fair enough. Like, it's like, you know, like, it sounds like I just watch VOD, but, like, literally, the past three days, I, I've gone up, sat down, and watched cricket on linear TV. Um, I watched a Champions League final, you know, last weekend. So it's not as if I am not watching linear TV still, it it is just very concentrated on sport. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's um, it is interesting, and like it does raise you know, those questions of when people complain, no, because no, at some point the Queen will die, um, and you know that no, we will not get anything on BBC not about the Queen for several days, if no, maybe several weeks, and um, it's no big deal, like. You know, iPlayer's there, you know, YouTube, Netflix, Prime is there. Um, well, no, you know, Queen hangs on for a couple of years. Netflix may not be there. Yeah. Um, you know, like, it's not as if the broadcast stations going off actually cuts choice as much as it once did. Now, of course, you can go the other way and say, well, what's the point of doing it? Because you're not actually imposing this kind of, uh, sense of the quorum, this national uh, moment of togetherness, but uh, but yeah, no, it's an interesting question. But yeah, yeah, yeah I, I, I've got a friend who basically his job was negotiating um, bandwidth um, for there. I don't quite understand, but it was something to do with bandwidth. And yeah, he he always whenever I mention this, he pops up. It is only about ten percent of television is isn't. Most people watch live television, a lot more live television than you expected. Um, well, my parents can't get VOD through their main television. Like, yeah. they, 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 well, they can get Amazon Prime, but if I'm if no one's there to tell them how to use it, <laughs> it's not it's not very effective. Um, now, now that that's that's one that, that's one thing where that's one thing where we differ because like. If you did that to my parents, they would have to go out and buy a new... They would have to, like, instantly go out and buy a new television. I think my, da- my dad, in particular, that would be like cutting an arm off. Well, I think I think the thing is, with with my... I mean, because I, I think we've talked about this before, but, like, my parents were still self-employed. So, like, they there is nothing forcing them to engage in the modern world except in very particular things. So, like, my dad does know how to use a computer, but he knows how to use one for work, and the things he knows how to use are the things that are useful. So, like, he can design leaflets in Publisher. 
and he can do stuff in Excel when he has to, although he does still use MS-DOS for his invoices. <laughs> um, um, yeah, my dad, Simon, I don't think I've told you this, my dad still has. So my dad had a non-Windows computer way into this century. And when, oh, the well. compu- when a computer finally died and he was persuaded to get a Windows computer, he insisted they put his MS-DOS invoicing program onto the new Windows computer. And what he has is he has two printers. He has a normal printer that can, you know, that is connected to, you know, that can do, print things through Word or Publisher. And then he has an old 80s one with like the square paper. <laughs> <laughs> the square wow. paper and the whole holes already punched in both down both sides. Yes, yes. We yes. had we had we had so the extent to which that is out of um fashion. My we had a box of that under the desk in the um study <laughs> that my dad brought home from work basically that we could use as like scrap paper drawing paper that kind of thing when i was i think in primary school because it was already <laughs> out of date yes <laughs> but like yeah you know, as, as far as like i'm pretty sure he still used i mean i've not been back to my parents for a couple of years but the last time i was there he still had this you know this 80s paper god knows where he's still getting it from yeah um, but um but yeah so um but yeah so like you know, like my parents, I mean, my mum's finally got into WhatsApp, but my dad never sends texts, even though he's had a mobile phone since the 90s. <laughs> they never send emails. Um, uh, they never do online well, no. delivery, uh, online oh, ordering. So, so, so I've so just because, um, you know, um, because, you know, to, to just to confirm this, I'm reading Media Nations, which is the Ofcom's report into these things. Oh, yes. Um, if you break down average minutes per day by devices, okay, total, total um, viewing, total kind of like TV viewing for, um, for your average British person is five hours and 40 minutes. Um, and that includes YouTube, it includes Netflix, it includes iPlayer, all of that. 162 minutes of that, so that's, what, two hours and 42 minutes. So more than half of it, or about half of it, is live television. So that's, yeah. of everything that you could use to watch it, still about half of what people are watching is, is live linear television. That, that, really, surpri- that really surprises me. And the thing is, that will be artificially high because that will be counting stuff that people watch on their phones. So if you're talking about TV versus, sorry, linear TV versus other ways of using your TV, linear TV will be even higher still. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, this is 2020, which obviously is the year of the pandemic, you know, the, the m- most recent year for which statistics are available that I could find in five minutes whilst Googling it. Um, yeah, BIAB yeah, has really reduced what you can get on their site for free, much to my annoyance, because I used to use that site quite a lot. But sorry, carry on, time. Yeah, I mean, so I, I mean, this comes to this is this is data from Barb, Comscore and Touchpoints. Yeah. But I mean, it does tell you a lot of the fact that we forget because we are all of a generation that we grew up with iPlayer, at least, you know, on our, on our computers. And I imagine you've all got, have you all got smart TVs these days? Yeah. yeah. I, you know, I, don't, I don't have a smart TV, but I do have a Chromecast. Yeah. But it's, it's like, we forget that a lot of people are like your parents and just like 
you've got you've got a TV and you're used to, and I think a lot of people the TV is the thing you is the is the hobby you have when you're not wanting to think about something and the easiest way of doing that is just putting on BBC One seeing what's on <laughs> and just watching it and I think but I mean yeah just because we don't sort of we've never I, I am also I think, aware I think, of some... I think I think actually that's really interesting and I've got a I think I need to tell my parents about that because my parents are obviously way more technically savvy and competent than they think they are because my yeah. parents basically don't watch live TV anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, my parents like, are really... Only... If, you, if, you took, if you took Prime, particularly my dad, if you took Prime away from my dad, I don't know what he'd do of an evening, to be honest. <laughs> I think the... Um... Yeah, I mean, I think I mean it's funny actually because it, I mean this is also is how people are different. Because I remember talking to a friend of mine, and I was saying to him that I watch a lot of like hour-long uh, YouTube videos, and he's like, "Oh no, I can only watch like at most half an hour, but more likely 10, 20 minutes." And I'm like, "Yeah, but I'm often doing stuff whilst watching a YouTube video, so like I actually I actually want something long." So I don't have to constantly go back and pick what I want to watch. I was, I was, I think it was in Wired. I was reading an article that basically said YouTube has tweaked the algorithm to make it to basically force content creators to create longer videos. Ah, yeah, they had. Yeah, and now they've changed it back. Okay. So yeah, so it used to be, it was like really good to do long videos. And I remember there's there's a there's a ser- a video game review series called Zero Punctuation. I watch a lot of and it was always hilarious because what it would do is it's normally five minute videos but what they would also do is they do an annual here are all the videos we did this year now they do a video a week so it'd be you know for they do they miss one week so it'd be 51 times five so you're looking at you know three four five hours and you would it, there was a point with the algorithm if you watched a zero punctuation the next thing in it would always recommend is one of those annual catch-ups. Yeah. Because it's like the algorithm knows you want to watch more zero punctuation, or it thinks you want to watch more zero punctuation. And it's biased towards giving you the longest thing possible. And the longest thing possible are these collections. But no, but apparently now it's it's no it no longer does that because there was an issue with people turning off long videos. And so now it's it's not just your length of your video, it's how much people watch of it. And if, right, you, okay. if you produce long videos that people tend to only watch a bit of, you actually get quite badly punished in the algorithm now. Okay, yeah. Like, but, I mean, this is not going to be, I don't think this will mean anything to either of you, but like Jenny Nicholson and Sarah Zed, you know, their video essays are getting on for like two, two and a bit hours now. Uh, like you watch something like Philosophy Tube, um, and then you know her video, her videos are getting on for an hour long now, and they are produced to within an inch of their lives. Well, I mean that is that is real. That must be really. They must have, you know, that must be a really professional setup. That was. I know they're very they're very very well supported on Patreon, but yeah, her videos are amazingly long and amazingly like. Intricate. Well, and also, I think both of you would enjoy Philosophy Tube. 
Um, uh, well, it's hilarious because obviously the Red Letter Media guys, you know, your favourite YouTubers, Luke. Yeah. Um, you know, love Mike Scalotta yeah. and uh, his takes on Star Trek. Um, but he obviously they they were they were like one of the forerunners of the of the long YouTube essay. Um, but when they did it, when they so they did their Phantom Menace review, that was still when YouTube had an upper limit on how long videos could be. <laughs> So they had a 70-minute Star, uh, Star Wars Phantom Menace review that they had to upload in seven parts. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's just like... Yeah, now you, you, will, you, you will get, like, two-hour, three-hour breakdowns. Or, no, that are actually longer than the thing they're breaking down, which is always... like I remember, like, when I used to write comic book reviews, someone went... I, I complained for over a 1,000 words why a comic a comic series for self-indulgent and a commenter responded saying you do realize you spent a thousand words <laughs> analyzing six pages of comic book art <laughs> like, ah. yeah. <laughs> oops who's your favorite youtuber simon Oh, um, I mean, I, I would probably, I think, I think I would probably, I mean, I, I would probably go with, and I, I don't think I, I'm quite as inside the, I'd probably go with um, someone I know you're also a fan of, um, Jay Foreman. Yes, I knew you were going to say Jay Foreman. <laughs> because I will always enjoy a man talking about very, very nerdy things to do with infrastructure and transport. I, I do love Jay. Did you watch his latest one, uh, completing the trilogy about bridges? I, I haven't got around to watching that one yet because you know I've been quite busy. But yeah, I will. I will. It's um, so good. I do. I do realise that we we are this. I'm not saying this isn't interesting, but we it, it, we have moved away from the Jubilee. Yeah, I'm gonna. I'm gonna say. I'm gonna say. We started off the. I think this shows just how much of even though you're a Republican, I'm monarchist and Willis a swing there, voter. I think. I think this really does go to show just how much each of us really cares about this subject. Yeah, it, it, I, I think this is. I think that's the. My, this this actually was the point I was trying to make, and like, which is, I think these. So I think these celebrations are are, are generally. I can't think of anything more cringe than going to a jubilee to a jubilee street party. But if that's what people want to do and it's making people happy, then awesome. But I mostly feel that. We don't. We wouldn't necessarily need monarchy for this. I think we had, you know, big, big fun celebrations for the millennium. I think we have big fun celebration. You know, if England were to win the World Cup in, at the end of the year, I think we'd have big fun celebrations for that. You know, I think generally there is just a desire. You know, I think it's a pretty I, natural I'm desire. Sure, I'm, sure, I'm sure. I'm sure we would, Simon. But with the final being that close, I'm sure we would normally. With the final being that this close to Christmas. You've got to remember that the the the, world, the final of the World Cup will be played on the 18th of December. Look, if England reach the World Cup final, <laughs> no, like British prosperity, British um, not prosperity, uh, productivity levels will reach an all-time low in that. Yeah, week. yeah. I've, I've, no I've got to say, I've got to say, I actually hope England don't win the World Cup because I really don't want the one World Cup England win in my lifetime probably to be the one in Qatar. I, I would I, take it. I think this is one of those things. I feel, I feel kind of, I feel very similarly to you, Luke. But I, the 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 people I feel kind of sorry for, you know, it is 
if Wales win their playoff match with Ukraine tomorrow, which we don't <laughs> know, and you know, it is literally three million people against seven billion um, in yeah, terms of quite. who people. But like, if Wales get to their first World Cup in most people, most Welsh fans' lifetimes. It's going to be, you know, it will feel like, you know, it should be, of course, a cause for huge celebration and, you know, fantastic. But it will feel, I, th- I think it will feel somewhat soured because it's I, going I to be held in this awful place. I don't think it will feel soured, though. I mean, you do have to remember the last World Cup was in Russia. Yeah, but the, 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 the slight, I mean, this isn't, this isn't a, this isn't a, this isn't a huge difference, but I think it is a difference. Russia is a pro- whatever else you say about it's Russia, football country. Record, it's government. It is a proper footballing country with a proper footballing tradition. Qatar just isn't. No, you, you're right. And there's a really good TIFO video that kind of talks about the kind of chaos in terms of the facilities. I mean, it's one of these ones. Yeah, it'd be better if Qatar wasn't hosting the World Cup. But I've got to be honest, I am glad it's in the winter, like just because. After basically non-stop football since it resumed um, after the first lockdown, I think everybody could do a break. I think the fans. Yeah, could... you, you you say that though. Well, I've been sitting here with my first weekend without football, thinking I wish there was some football. <laughs> and then there was that England Hungary game, but not even I'm desperate enough for yeah. the methadone and <laughs> the methadone of the nation's league. Um, but like. I, I I think the thing is with Qatar, it's not really world football's fault because, you know, if you actually look at it, it was blatant corruption from the Qataris. It was yeah. Euro- European nations lobbying their federations to back Qatar. I mean, he, when, <laughs> when Seth Blatter thinks the corruption has gone too far, you know you're in trouble. But, um, no, look, the main the main reason to be nervous about that World Cup, other than the organisational issues, and, like, yeah, the human rights issues, but, you know, at the end of the day, it was in Russia in 2018. I know South Africa is a democracy, but I think there are human rights issues about a country that poor, spending so much money on hosting sporting competitions, rather than spending it on its own people. Um, you know, even ourselves, with things like the Olympics... The way you have to kind of let these multinational sporting bodies trample over domestic laws isn't brilliant. Uh, and we you know, go into a complete rabbit hole. The thing to really be worried about, with, with, in my opinion, with Qatar is just how bloody hot it's going to be. Like, I know it's in the winter, but I have watched cricket in Qatar um, at like in October, November time. And this is cricket, which isn't as physically strenuous as football. And players are always complaining about how hot it is and how difficult it is to kind of be at peak condition. And like they are literally going to have players play like midday local time. And I think there's a real danger. Fans, players are ill due to, the, to being out in the heat at that time. And, and I mean, you know, it's even, just, it's if, just... even if that doesn't happen, we know this. World Cups holding hot places always lead to, to worse football because fundamentally football's a winter sport. Except Mexico 70, which is arguably the best World Cup of all time. Have you watched games from that World Cup? They are walk- It's like they're walking through treacle. Okay. 
I, I that watched, is that I that is that has episodes. the reputation of being the best World Cup because it was the first one in color TV. And yeah. I think it's I think it's the first one outside of Europe they could actually broadcast um, in its entirety. Like I've watched YouTube highlights, but I don't think I've watched like a ninety minute game. I watched the England Brazil game all the way through. So I think it was re aired before the two thousand and two meet quarterfinal, and holy moly, it's slow. Like and like, obviously, old football is slower than modern football. But even compared to say, like the '66 World Cup, which is another game I've watched all the way through, it is played at a really slow pace because it's just so hot. Okay, but anyway, back to the Queen. Um, I mean, I think the thing is, I think the reason why like the opposition is quite muted is fundamentally because. I think, every, I mean, John, John Elledge has been making this point I'm on his substack and in the New Statesman. You can't argue it's not an historic, an event of historical importance. Like, monarchs reaching a platinum jubilee doesn't happen very often. Um, a monarch of a major nation, no offence, Liechtenstein, um, really doesn't happen very often. So, I don't, Unlike say we no 25th Jubilee, which you know kind of happens quite quite often. I don't think anybody can plausibly claim that royalists are, you know, inventing an excuse to celebrate the Queen. No, what what she has achieved by not dying um is very impressive. Um I think I, I think the interesting thing for me is as I I I work this out. That if the Queen lives as long as her mother, and if Charles lives as long as his father, Charles won't become king until 2027. So we will have another one of these big parties to celebrate the Queen becoming the longest reigning monarch in uh, human history, recorded human history. That's an interesting question because, of course, like that would be a really that'll be a really weird one because, like, we generally do. 10 i mean do you think basically because with the best will in the world the queen is old and probably quite unwell um that they're gonna use any opportunity to celebrate it now it, which yeah because it'll be 72 years it's something like 70 it'll happen at some point in 2024 yeah i think you'll, you'll remember it'll be taking a record off a of frenchman that will amuse and also it, yeah. any excuse, any excuse for a four day weekend. Yeah. Um, um, so you you you'll have you'll have some sort of celebration of that. But like Charles, if he lives as long as his dad, even if he takes over in twenty twenty seven, he probably will reign for for, for for around two decades. He because like you know I don't see a re like obviously anything could happen. There's no reason to think Charles won't live well into his nineties. You know, he no, it's he's not like a, a Edward VII figure who doesn't look after himself, yeah. um, or, or or William or a William the Fourth, no, William George the Fourth figure who doesn't look after himself. So um, yeah, Charles Charles will probably live uh, have a, a fairly substantial reign. And William probably won't take the throne over until either his very late fifties or his early sixties, and I can't make my mind about this. There's there's an argument that this is fine, 
because basically what it makes the monarch and a monarchy the like the nation's grandparents like that's you know like the queen did have a dip in popularity in the you know in, in like the kind of uh, late 80s early 90s um and it's came back ever since she's like become a properly old woman so like actually you know most of us like our gra- grandparents um the, the the monarch being this kind of old dignified person that speaks in Yoda-like sentences. It's fine. You know, that's a perfectly valid role for the monarchy to have. But the, I don't know, the, the thing I do kind of think of, and it's, 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 somewhat, it's somewhat lacking in glamour. Yeah, and this is the thing, like, I don't know how you hold a line at that role and the monarchy just doesn't become very old-fashioned. And the danger of becoming old-fashioned is only people who like old-fashioned things will like you. And because there is this issue of age polarization within modern politics, you then kind of get dragooned into all these cultural topics, which which some people have tried to do with this kind of like hyping up this, you know, Harry, Meghan versus a royal family feud and trying to, you know, pretending they're trying to protect the monarchy whilst demonizing Harry and Meghan. And I was well, reading- yeah, I, I think I think that that is because I think that's also because Meghan Markle, you know, is who she is, actress, foreigner. You know. Well, yeah, yeah, but like this is all my point. It's like you know, that's not good for the monarchy. You know, that's people. You know, they say they're protecting the monarchy, but they're actually damaging them. Yeah, but but, but like, and like, this is going to sound very weird. I was reading a really charming article from the BBC on the BBC website about the Queen's corgis. And um, so, like, basically, when the corgis weren't really a thing in England until the Queen had one, like, the Queen got one because a friend had one and she really liked the dog. Um, But, like, they're they're, they're from Wales. They're a Welsh breed. But as the, you know, then Princess Elizabeth and then the Queen had had these corgis and became associated with them, they became a really popular dog. But then as the queen aged, the the popularity of corgis plummeted because they became seen as an old person's dog until the crown on Netflix was broadcast and you had young Claire Foy reminding people of our generation and below, oh no, the queen used to be a hot young woman. And then it was like people started buying corgis again. And I think part of the great strength of monarchy is, yes, you get this grandparent-in-chief thing, but you do also get this thing of youthful glamour. That No, that politics, can, politics can't really do the grandparent-in-chief stuff um, because even politicians who are old enough to do it have to kind of be your annoying grandparent who refuses to play with the children because they're busy working. Um, yeah, I mean, that, uh, Reagan kind of did that uh, to an extent. I mean, that there is that old. I think it's an old. Um, oh, I can't remember his name. It was Guardian journalist, one the Michael White. Michael White used to go around saying the thing you understand about about Reagan. He's much pl- much better playing the Queen Mother than Margaret Thatcher. Yeah. Um, 
But anyway, the, that youthful glamour is important in the sense of what the, mon- the one of the rules monarchy is meant to play and did play them even at the beginning of the Queen's reign is this kind of um, leader in style, leader of fashions. Um, yeah, know, basically the, the, trying to reflect the country back to itself. Well, not just that, but I leader. Think, so I th- this is this is the, I, th- I think I think you're all making a really like yeah we are basically you're basically constructing a model where it's distinctly possible for the, for most of the rest of our work for probably the rest of our working lives our head of state will basically be a pensioner yeah or, or close to it and I think I think you're right I think that there is a uh, I think that you know. The monarchy, you know, say what you will, you know, and obviously I, I come at this from a from a not partic- from an from a broadly non-monarchist position. I accept that, but you know, the queen because obviously she became queen very young because sadly her father died very young and only fifty six. Um, but there was something about you know Britain had got through World War Two and all of that grimness, and we were starting to you know try and rebuild stuff, and we've got this you know young you know, young, fresh-faced new generation. And if the monarchy basically just keeps looking like it doesn't reflect the whole, doesn't actually reflect our country and that the the, the succession just becomes a succession of basically pensioners who are out of touch, I think that the pressure for, you know, I think that the monarchy will just increasingly just not be something anyone will take any interest in and because you will never get this thing one of the things about the queen's reign you know she's obviously clearly very fit and healthy you know you know her sister has been dead for 20 years you know that's you know and her sister was younger than her i mean but if the monarchy if the monarchy just become you know that even if even if, if even the succession is basically just pensioners handing on to pensioners i think people will look at it and go you know this isn't this doesn't reflect us this can't this doesn't reflect the country we are i mean the monarchy the queen doesn't need to reflect who we are because the sense is that we have she has seen us through you know all all of us you know were born at a point when the queen was already an old woman i mean the only member of my family still alive who can remember not the queen is my grandmother who is nearly 90 you know this is this is a whole life we're not going to have that experience. One of the things we're seeing a lot of you know, at the moment, the, the kind of tributes are, you know, gosh, how much has Britain changed since 1952? The answer is a great deal. And the fools who said to you, Gov, that life would be better uh, need to be, you know, taken outside and spoken to rather harshly. But that's neither here nor there. But if you're going to get a series of reigns that are 15, 20 years long of people who basically their best years are, are already behind them, that don't really connect with the culture, then I think the monarchy will increasingly just feel kind of irrelevant. And, you know, the, the calls that a sensible Republican movement will make, and that is not the movement we have at the moment, which is, I don't think is, has, particularly, has been particularly effective, will be... Look, don't you want a cunt to be represented by something that feels like you know that you actually get a chance to talk, actually see it some uh, your head of state, the person, the way you, the, the person we kind of put at front and center as our representative to the world, someone who at least partially feels like they reflect the country you live in. Now, of and, I, I, I think that, I think that's a good point, Sam. But but one thing I would say is the monarchy isn't just 
the person of the monarch. And that's why I think Charles's idea about slamming down the monarchy is misguided because, you know, people like the Prince of Wales, people like the very, you know, the William and Kate's, you know, being in St Andrews or the Harry and Meghan's, they can play that role of being, you know, of representing the younger part of the country, basically. So I think it's actually quite counterproductive from the monarchy's point of view to want to slim down the civil list. I, I think that's a really bad idea. Well, I mean, I... Yeah, to go on that point, and I've got to come back to Simon's point, which I know is also my point. So, like, this is thing is, like, again, like, I've thought about this. I'm a swing voter on the monarchy. If there's ever a referendum, it would be one of those ones where I would generally listen to debates. I'd probably be quite but in, quite influenced by what system of... Um, well, ideally not a republic, ideally a commonwealth would be proposed as a replacement uh, for the monarchy. But um, to go into Luke's point, I, I agree as well. I don't think shrinking the monarchy is a good idea because the reality of the situation is they're still related to you. Like, you know, you can take, you know, you can take Harry's kids, you know, you can take the silly titles off Harry's kids but everyone still knows they are Prince Williams. Yeah, and you're gonna have all nephews. sorts. Of, you're gonna have all sorts of shady businessmen and chances trying to use them if they're and, not being paid from the public. But yeah, and that's what we see with um, with, with European monarchs. I've gone through this. Yes, you can slim it down. Yes, that reduces the bill and all this sort of stuff. But it doesn't stop you getting embroiled in scandals because people rightly say, well, they're they're still your family. They still reflect you, though. They still will have some influence over you because, you know, if this person get goes to family dinner, they can potentially, you know, make make some kind of deal with you. It's also one of the arguments against abdication. Because like Spain has had all sorts of issues with their ex-king get getting up to no good because they get because again, like, this is the thing, isn't it? I think we see over and over again, yes, people with money have lots of money and that makes their lives a lot easier. But everyone wants purpose in life. And one thing having lots and lots of money does is make, makes, makes it a lot harder to feel a sense of purpose in your life. And so you kind of almost have to work harder and take more risks and do more to feel that sense of purpose. I don't think it's coincidence that the kind of the wealthiest ex-prime minister um, we've had in recent years in David Cameron is the one that got his fingers most badly burnt in scandal. Because I, I really don't think it's, it's, it was about the money for Cameron. I just think the guy wanted something to do. Um, and so yeah, I, I have grave concerns. I mean, the argument against this is when the Queen dies, you are going to have to send Prince Andrew to St. Helena. Um, oh, by the way, that was, that, that was the most strategically useful case of COVID ever. Yeah, I'm yes. surprised. <laughs> At 19, I thought COVID would be too old for, for Andrew. Hey! But I think, I mean, if you... Here, here is... I mean, I can't remember who said this, so it's not an original, and I'll be honest, it's not an original, but, like, here's here's how I think it must have gone down. Like, the Queen going, oh, we're very sorry to say that Andrew has COVID, but, Mum, I haven't even had tested. So, as I was saying, You've Andrew has COVID. COVID. <laughs> like, it was so convenient that I... 
don't but I don't believe that test for a second. Yeah, have, 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 so, have you watched? Somebody is sitting there with the test and a red magic marker. I'm absolutely convinced. Have you watched <laughs> Scary of 61 yet, Simon? No, and you know, your name's not Simon. No, okay. and I'm not going to, but you know, you should fine. so watch anyway. So, yeah, so I um, I do agree with that on on and uh, Simon's point, and, and I, I. Like I don't, I don't know what the right answer is in terms of can you? So yeah, yeah. So disappointing to me too is, I think you're right. That will be the argument Republicans will try and make. The one, of course, the one issue is, you actually look at constitutional monarchs in most countries, they also play the na- the role of the nation's grandparent. It just tends to be the the, the grandparent who's really into politics. Who's like, you know, you, you look at the Irish um, president, you know, like, they're always relatively old figures. Oh, it's... no, OK, OK, no, so let's think about this. Michael, so that's true of Michael D. Higgins, who, you know, came to power at the end of his career. Oh, I, I know mean... what, you're right, it's not as true of Ireland of a country, but you look at places like Germany. Well, that's because they aren't directly elected, I think. That's, because that's true, that's fair. That's why, why I would want a directly elected Irish model, because, yeah... In in Italy, for instance, you know, Mattarella and Ciampi, like they are basically it's basically a bauble handed out by the establishment to some old grandee, you know, which I I don't, which I you know, it's more democratic than the than the current system, but I kind of think what, that uh, it would be kind of a pointless, you know, would be it would not be a, it would be a move I think a lot of people would see as broadly pointless. What do you make of? Tony Benn's suggestion, and this is obviously in the context of a unitrombral, a House of Parliament or House of Parliament, of the Speaker would be the 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 head of state. I I don't support, and I, I mean I I've heard that argument before. I I don't support it because I think in the end, the Speaker is a really it's a really weird amorphous kind of election which does which people don't really understand and it seems you know i i'm i'm a believer that if we're going to if you're going to go through all of the rigmarole and all of the i mean first and foremost let's be honest about this i think the chances of the monarchy falling in my lifetime are less than 30 percent because at the moment the british monarchy enjoys between 80 and 85 percent support generally you know and, and and to be fair, like, you know, if my argument is an argument from democracy, you know, keeping a thing with that kind of level of support, you have to respect that. But so but I think if you're going to go through the process of getting rid of a monarchy and you've got to you've got to make the case that this thing would be highly democratic. And I think the indirect nature of the Speaker of the House of Commons being the head of state I think most people don't pay enough attention to the speaker's election for that to be, you know. Yeah. To- <laughs> so, my, so can I can I give the counter argument? Uh, sorry, briefly. To me, the counter argument, and and like Ben said this in '92, uh, so some of this isn't quite as relevant because speakers have stopped dressing properly um, in the preceding twenty years. Sadly, thirty years. My God, thirty years. The argument for the speaker. Is not so much that it's um, that it and of itself is democratic. So obviously, when Ben said, I mean, you're talking about it being a very convoluted election process now. 
we didn't even have this at that point. It was still the old system where it was um, the speaker was proposed in motion, and the, you basically once you know when usual channels broke down, you would have you, they they basically hacked this process by having the election be a succession of amendments to the motion. Um, so it was even more convoluted than it is now because there hadn't been an election for Speaker until 92, for, for decades, I believe. It's only not a, a real one, anyway. Um, the argument for making the Speaker is... the, the you know, It basically goes back to Badshot, doesn't it? The idea of there is the efficient and dignified part of the Constitution. There's a bit that is about running the country, and then, then there's the bit about embodying the country, you know, body versus um, soul. And so the head of state, if you're going to separate head of state from head of government, the head of state should be about embodying the country's soul. So the idea of giving the job to the speaker isn't necessarily that the speak, though make, making it the speaker is particularly democratic because, yeah, it is, but it is the MPs picking the head of state by themselves, you know, arguably back back when Ben suggested it, it'd be the the whips, the two major party whips choosing the head of the head of state. The argument is, is what that means is, is you are enshrining the principle of democracy at the heart of the dignified part of the constitution, that you have this person that no, again, it's it, it, for all sorts of reasons, it doesn't work as well as it once did. But, but, you know, has the silly title, has the silly costume, has this uh, mystique and aura, um, is meant politically neutral, so it won't infringe on the Prime Minister's prerogatives, looking at you, John Burko, but does kind of make it very clear that as a country, as a constitution, what we primarily care about is the will of the people, as mediated through the House of Commons. Yeah, and I mean, I th- I, th- I think this is the I think this is the broad problem that Republican Republicanism has in a British context is that you can't find you can't find a model of Republicanism that isn't such a radically sharp break. With the history of the entire British and indeed entire English and Scottish states, that basically doesn't require the country to be completely refounded again from first principles. And like, but, and, and actually, look, this is the thing, isn't it? Because I'm, yeah. I'm one of the swing voters where I, 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 <laughs> I don't like the monarchy in theory, but I'm okay with it in practice. Yeah. So like. I you know if you can persuade me that you can get rid of the monarchy and not fundamentally change the country, I'd probably vote for it. It's but not if, even change. It's not even change the country because you know. We know what I mean, like you know, But if 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 because I think what you're about to say is like the monarchy would be part of a package that includes written constitution, PR, codified role for the cabinet in law you know all the you know like the electoral reform society's wish list and i would not wonder yeah i think this is so i mean you could do that but this is why this is why i've all why in the end i've come down to an irish style presidency 
as my model of choice because the Irish star presidency was designed because in 19 in the in the fallout of the um abdication whilst the british establishment were trying desperately to quietly half hitch and not half make sure a nazi didn't get anywhere near the throne um and he did very success and very successfully he uh, he decided to try and collect try and get married to someone inappropriate um, can i can i close can, can, can i just say i'm still bitter but we haven't had a good film about the abdication crisis. Yeah, and to it's quote, an incredible story. To quote Bill Bryson, so he could marry that sour-faced Simpson woman and go fishing with Goebbels. But it's like, but it's like, I, I like it's, I, I like, I love the King's Speech as a film. I do like it. But the name, like the first blog post of the old WordPress version of it, could be said that from which this podcast takes its name was me making a point that the King's speech makes no sense and it is completely against history. And, like, actually, The Application Crisis is an amazing film. And, like, it does that thing that, like, so many British historical dramas want to do, which is crowbar the royals and Churchill into the same story and have it actually have dramatic importance, which... There's basically two. Does anybody know what the second one is? So what's so, uh, so, 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 so the thing is, the film, a film with high dramatic stakes involving Churchill and the monarchy. There's a second that hasn't been made as well. Well, they've not made. So I mean, I suppose he very. I mean, Churchill was very directly involved in the tele, everything around to do with the coronation because he was prime minister again by then. Um, yeah, but that's not very dynamic. That's like, not very I, dramatic. Or and I don't think I don't think Churchill was that involved in the coronation. It's it's left to the palace. Do you do you know what it is, Luke? No, go on. D Day, because Churchill. Oh yeah, Churchill. Churchill like, you, you no, the story. No, George VI basically had to veto Churchill. Well, no, he did. No, he didn't veto. What George VI? So Churchill wanted to. Accompany. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Churchill wanted to accompany, be part of the D-Day landings. And the only way anybody could think to stop him is George VI said, if you go, Winston, I will, I will go too. And at that point, Churchill was like, uh, yeah, but that will put you in danger, Your Majesty. Uh, and which he went, yes, that's the point. That's the point. <laughs> yeah, so that's you know, the you know what? You know, you know, you know the you know the follow up to that. Well, no, because Churchill got the telegram about that on his way to Portsmouth to meet the Gaul. Oh, really? And that, oh that my God, we can add the Gaul into the film. Yeah, and what? that was that. That was that. For that, that is the famous meeting between Churchill and the Gaul. With you know, we will always look to the open sea, blah 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 blah. This is a thing, it's like I don't resent, I, I, I do resent the fact that we have so many things made about World War II, made about, yeah, um, the royal family, but it also was like the fact that they're so fucking boring because, like, <laughs> I, I, I would watch that, that would be great. Sorry, Simon, you're making a point about Ireland, you know, not the yeah, town. so. Because so because when the um, the application crisis was taking over basically all of the uh, royal family and British government's bandwidth for a while, De Valera, because he was a wily old thing, went, I think I'm just going to basically kick the governor general out. And so they had to very quickly replace the 
that bastion of royal authority with something and they used the model of the elected Irish president. So to my mind, you wouldn't need to change, you know, you wouldn't need to change a great deal in the British constitution if you didn't want to. You can just lift the monarch out and put the elect that directly elected presidential figure in, who I, I've always said, I think the, the joy of the Irish presidency is that it does, it has successfully reflected the changing times. You know, the year that uh, divorce was legalized, um, the beginning of sort of, our, of sort of a feminist moment in Ireland, they elect their first woman. Um, in the year of the, uh, the, the start of all, uh, you know, the year before the Good Friday Agreement, they elect someone born in Belfast. And then in 2011, after the sort of implosion of Ireland's sort of national pride and um, the financial situation, they elect someone from, from the traditional left and also someone who is probably best known as an arts minister, a poet, whose interests were sort of returning Ireland to its sort of cultural roots. Um, now, they've had a very good run of presidents. I would think all three of those figures, Mary Robinson, <coughs> Mary McAleese, and Michael Higgins, D. Higgins. Higgins hasn't had the best year. No, he's, Higgins, no, he's not. Had, Higgins had been really shaky on, like, Northern Ireland centenary, and, like, surprisingly so, like... Yeah, no, I, I think, yeah, I think you're I think the surprises are right, because he's, I think he's been... Because, I mean, Ireland has had a, you know, it's 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 decade of centenaries between sort of 1916, sort of 2016, 2026 or whatever, are, are, are challenging. And generally, he was very well praised for sort of the way he got through it. But, you know, yes, obviously, you could end up with someone terrible. There's always a risk. But, hey, do you know what the great thing about democracy is? If you end up with someone terrible, you can get rid of them after, after a bit so, as well. So my argument would be... And I think you are right. And I think you actually have more modern examples because, like, Barbad um, Bar Barbados, they've done the same thing. Like, the, the first president is literally the last governor general. Mm. Um, um, I, mean, I, I think it's sad. I, I assume they haven't given it to Rihanna because she's busy being a new mom. <laughs> it's coming. It's coming. But I think the issue you have is I think the model in Ireland works better in smaller countries where it's much easier for someone to kind of build a head of steam, you know, being an arts minister, a well-known poet. You know, wasn't Mary Robinson like a woman's rights campaigner or something like that? Yeah, she was. You, you, Organisations that in, in the context of Britain, you know, a, you know, a country, what, 10 times the size of Ireland, um, um that are quite small become quite big in the Irish context, and that makes them credible candidates for the presidency. Um, and obviously, there's also a culture of um, the type of people Ireland wants to be its president. It's hard to see unless you didn't do some form of uh, indirect election. And if you've had like there is an indirect element to the Irish presidency election due to how nominations are done. I think I think it's much harder to see how it doesn't become um, either a bit of a rabble rousing Mickey 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 Mouse position, or one dominated by old politicians. Because um, someone was asking this, like, so say if we did have a press, say we had a president next year, who do we think would be the British president? If you assume it wouldn't just be the Queen or Prince Charles running for it. 
What do you think, Luke? Because Simon's gone somewhere. Because um, I really struggle to answer this question. Yeah, no, it's 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 an interesting one, isn't it? I, I <laughs> who do you so so we'll ask Simon because he, he is the Republican here. If we had, say, we had a British president next year, and like the royal family agrees not to, to run. Who would be the first British president? I think it's a gen. I think it's a genuine challenge, and I think it's that classic thing of yeah. You, I mean, to give my po-faced Republican answer, obviously it would be down to the decision of the British people. But who would I like? Because the person I would have said ten years ago was probably Paddy Ashdown. Um, no, you know, <laughs> the thing is that they can't. Somebody like that can't be politically neutral. They can't. But they can. I'm just not going to be very inspiring. Even if they want to be, they carry too much baggage, surely. Perhaps. I mean, it's. Very, I think it is difficult to say. I mean, it, it, there, isn't, there isn't an obvious candidate, but there isn't, you know, sometimes there isn't. I mean, who do you, yeah, who do you go for? You'd want someone who, you know, is generally regarded as... A symbol I've got, of a, I've, got, I've got it. I've got it. Go on. Paul McCartney. Yeah. James May. Would... You know, the, 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 no, from Top Gear, but the left wing person on Top Gear. No, so, no, you know. Paul McCartney. No, I think, I think I agree with this for only one reason, which is no. if he was president of Britain, it would mean that he that we would no longer he, he wouldn't have the time to end every t- national event with a really tedious and overlong version. Of yeah. No, no, it's the opposite. Like he would he he would he would like play "God Save the President" and but it would be him playing it. No, that's fine. I just don't want him to play K Jude for nine would minutes. Would "God Save the President" become our national anthem? No, I, well, anyway. Before we, before we move Actually, on... Actually, I did, I, did, I did have something to say, actually, but more, more broadly about the monarchy. Go on. Um, which is... Um, no, I know Simon's a fan of this, but obviously there is a famous Irish Times, you know, living next to a monarchy is, is like living next to a, a house that, it, that loves clowns and a clown murdered your family. Um, which I always thought, you know, it's, it's that kind of sneering... Attitude that sometimes crops up in Irish coverage of the UK and also ignores the fact that, you know, many countries that Ireland would happily compare itself to also have monarchies. You know, I've, no, it's it's not a small portion of Europe, particularly Western Europe, that obviously didn't have the break in history uh, Soviet rule entailed. Quite a lot of Western Europe still has monarchies. So it's not actually weird. For no, for the, a country in the West to have a monarchy, it's it's actually fairly normal. That said, the British monarchy is weird. It is weird due to the length of the Queen's tenure. So no, we are no. It's, it is still no. It is it is you know it is a mon. No, her reign straddles the end of empire. In a way that's not true for any of her contemporaries. 
obviously it's, it's very weird in the sense of she is queen of, and actually one of the best ways you can see this is I don't know if, if you know, if any of you notice this, if you, if you know, I think most people just call her the queen, which we'll talk about, I'll talk about towards the end. But if you do specify the country, I instinctively say the queen of England. I don't call her the British queen. I don't call her the queen of Britain. I call her the queen of England because of course, when her reign started, it's before we all got politically correct and uh, self-conscious about making sure the Scots felt, felt included um, in the union. Um, and so, you know, the UK was just routinely referred to as England. Um, and, you know, and obviously there was a famous thing when she came to the throne, there was the arguments over whether she was Queen Elizabeth I or II. Um, and, you know, they had to definitely assuage Scottish complaints, um, um, which, you know, is a complete farce, won't stick. You know, they, they, won't, they won't pretend, um, you know, James... You know, if, if we get a James IV, they're not going to pretend it's James IX to placate the Scots. Um, so so it's, it's weird because of the length of the Queen's reign. It's obviously weird because she is... She rules over more than one country. Um, and so she has, like, this global footprint. Um, you know, head of the Commonwealth and Charles is confirmed as the as her successor. And I think it'll be, it'll be very interesting to see whether they can secure the same role for William. We've seen this stuff in, in the Caribbean about um, black majority countries kind of, I think, pretty much universally rebelling um, against the idea of having a right head of state. Whether that's because of Black Lives Matter, whether that's because they're all really embarrassed that fucking Barbados did this before <laughs> <laughs> you know, you you make your decision, um, and of course, it, it is just a much more ostentatious monarchy. You know, not just in the size of the civil list, but in terms of you know its use. You know, it's you know they're still going around giving themselves these medals for valor and giving themselves military titles and living in these huge palaces and there's been you know and like you know like this this is stuff like this is where i think the danger for charles is because like i think he wants to have his cake and eat it he's happy to reduce the size of the monarchy like european monarchs have but i don't think he wants to become a bicycling monarch as they were once mocked in britain um and of course you again you know you have the fact that you have such a long reign she is, you know, she is by far the 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 the, the most established, longest-serving figure on the world stage. You know, none of her contemporaries are still alive from when she took over as queen. Um, like, you know, who would be who, Kissinger? Maybe as a major world figure, would be the next longest serving after her. What would you say, Luke? <sighs> Yeah, Kissinger, um, Mikhail, the, Gorbach Mikhail Gorbachev. Well, no, because Gorbachev only becomes a major world figure in the 80s. That's, that's not... Yeah, but, well, I mean... Anyway, I don't know is the answer. I don't know. And I always, I always think of the line in The God, Godfather. You know, if we lose the old man, 
we lose half our strength. Judges, politicians, you'll make the deal. Who knows? Like Prince Charles is also a very long-standing public figure who has a global network. Yeah. But I do think we sometimes underestimate, you know, in these world summits, in these world meetings, networking is important. Meeting famous people that you've grown up admiring is important. And actually, there may have been a really important... No, there definitely is a way that the Queen has amplified British soft power. I think to a certain extent that has already been whittled away. Like it's quite striking when Prince Philip died and you realise that he's basically not done anything on a multinational basis of any major importance this century. But in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s and 90s, you know, like multinational NGOs were desperate to, for his patronage and for him to kind of advance their cause. So I do think it's, it will be an interesting shift in terms of does the British monarchy become more normal after the Queen? Yeah. And if it does, does that make us a less important country? Before we move off this topic, because you've talked about what's going on in the Caribbean, Simon's talked about what's going on, or Simon's talked about Ireland. That, that you see a lot of, you see particularly British coverage of Australian politics. Now there is a Labour government. Well, you know, Anthony Albanese is, a, is you know, a, on record as being a Republican. So will there be another referendum on um, Australian Republicanism? The answer is no, because Anthony Albanese made it quite clear that although, you know, if you ask him, he's a Republican, the priority for constitutional reform in Australia is trying to work out a new relationship between the Australian government and the First Nations. Yeah, and, uh, I, think, and I think it's due to say First Nations. I think, I think the model is Canada, right yeah. down to the language. So, like, you amend the constitution. So what, what would have been called Aborigines, you know, that their kind of collective, communitarian... Uh, representative bodies have have constitutional status. Yeah, and also in the case of Australia, they're trying to work out a way in which you could have like reserved seats in the state legislatures and the national parliament for Aboriginal representation, basically, um, because Australia uses a constituency-based system. That's not easy. That's very difficult to actually do in practice, even though everybody is in everybody in principle is in favour of it. So no, there won't be another referendum anytime soon because like that's gonna that's gonna use up all the bandwidth for you know constitutional reform. Um I I think it'll be a bit like what's happened in the West Indies, where it will be New Zealand will get round to it first. Yeah, probably. And then Australia will be like, what? Even New Zealand's got rid of the monarchy, and then they'll rush it through. I'm uh, in a panic because they've been shown so, up. So the, showed so up. The, so the Queen's had a good party dubs, but Boris Johnson definitely hasn't. No, what, what happened to uh, Boris Johnson? Uh, I, I'll go with Simon. What happened to Boris Johnson, Simon? At party dubs. So Boris Johnson, uh, as with all living former British prime ministers, and. You know, I feel he will fit into that category <laughs> relatively soon. Um, we attended the ceremony of 
um, celebration at St Paul's Cathedral. I've almost certainly got the wrong title, but you know what I mean. You know, there was a big celebration. Call uh, yourself you know, a Londoner. I like most Londoners. I was quietly ignoring it. Oh no! I, thought, I, I, I misheard you. I, I thought you got the the name of St Paul's Cathedral wrong. No, I, I mean, <laughs> because it wasn't. The Dean of St. Paul's didn't lead it. Oh, actually, actually sorry. Before you, before you explain what happened, can I just say one more thing? Like, I know the Queen is clearly very, very old and is struggling with health. Um, I do think people... Like, look, she, no, if, she, if, you, if we woke up tomorrow and she's dead, um, A, it was Luke's fault. But B, you know, that wouldn't be a surprise because obviously <laughs> she's very old. But I think people need to realise... There was like a huge chasm between up for going out and you know, and uh, and like standing up for a prolonged period, walking around in a huge cathedral, or you know, walking around standing up at at at, at a horse racing meet and being on death's door. That actually, old people, particularly old people who get access to the best healthcare in the world. Notice that we never talk about whether the Queen uses the NHS or not. Um, um, actually, she could live for quite long. And we know this because this is what happened to Queen Mother and Prince Philip, for that matter, where like they had stopped doing stuff in public for quite a prolonged period uh, before they kind of entered what, you know, what was their death spiral. So, like, yeah, no, obviously the Queen could die at any moment. But I think some people think in... You know, because she can't go out, that um, uh, uh, no, that that you know, that is certain. I think, I think I'm mistaken. I, you know, I think fifty-fifty. She breaks Louis' records. Um, yeah, um, it's probably a fair, a fair, a fair guess. Um, and as I said, her mum did not look after herself as well as the Queen did, and lived to one hundred and one. So you, you would you would think the Queen probably does break that record and tell you what, you know what would be, know what would be impressive if she actually made 80 years on the on the throne. Like that, like could, could you imagine how cool it would be if the Queen of England was also the world's oldest person? Well, she wouldn't still wouldn't be the world's no, oldest. No, she'd she'd have to get 106 to... then. Which is like, I mean, that's super old, but like Usually, the old world's oldest person is about 113, 114. But you'd have to get near to a 90th anniversary. This is the thing we don't know what the 80th anniversary is. Like, apparently, it's Diamond again. Well, because I think 75, I, I assume if they get to 75, there will be a thing. Because I think that's Sapphire. So I think that's what they called her 75th wedding anniversary. Because a few people do reach that. Yes, but at eighty, we're going to have to find a new gemstone. <gasps> so I mean, you know what you know, no, you know what it'll be. You don't you? You know what they're going to try and do. I don't. I'm terrified. If, by more. if it got to eighty, it'd be Elizabethan jubilee. No, it. it, it they would it, try it, and name it after her. Uh, yeah, that is the sort of thing that would happen, and it would be embarrassing to all involved. Anyway, <laughs> Boris Johnson. Talking of embarrassing yes. all involved. Yeah. Hey. So yeah. So Boris Johnson with his went to the um, service of celebration 
at St Paul's Cathedral, along with Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, John Major, David Cameron. You know, it was it was very much uh, all all of the great and the good, and you know, David Cameron, Johnson, <laughs> and David Cameron were there. Um, yeah, you know, it was very and, much. And a, Tony Blair was something they go get away from me, loser. <laughs> and it was, but so and what and one of the and one and, and obviously this was this was this was broadcast live on the news channels because you know there's a lot of coverage of the Platinum Jubilee on those. And when, as Boris Johnson went into St Paul's Cathedral, up the front steps, uh, it was very obvious that he, he was being greeted by loud booing. You know, booing that was, you know, loud enough to be picked up on, on, a, on cameras that were, you know, that were there not primarily to talk, to pick up, you know, the noise of the crowd. You know, that, that was sort of background noise whilst, you know, I don't know, Kay Burley went and here's the Prime Minister and his wife walking up the steps, blah, 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 you know. It was very obvious. And although, you know, by the end of the day, you know, some pressure off from Downing Street, you know, turned the, turned it from, you know, greeted by boos to greeted by a mix of boos and cheers, nah, it was pretty obvious what was happening. I think, and, and as a lot of people have observed, if Boris Johnson, as a, cons- as a Conservative Prime Minister and quite a sort of, you know, posh Conservative Prime Minister, or at least he likes to present himself in that way, is being booed by the sort of people who are willing to stand around in the street for several hours so they might get a chance to have a glimpse of the Duke of Cambridge. You know, it's all over, isn't it? Like, I mean, if I bring in Luke, and he can answer that... Oh, my God, that's that's bad back uh, feedback. Um, before you bring in Luke, and he can answer that question, I do, I do want to make two points. I think, as Simon says... The microphones are not designed to pick up the booze. And like obviously, this is the obvious comparison is George Osborne at the Paralympics in 2012. But that's in a stadium with everything mic'd up to pick up what the crowd are saying. Um, and to me, this felt louder. Just, you know, it, it really cut through. Also, I would quite like to play poker against Carrie Johnson. Because, my God, does she not have a poker face? <laughs> like, Johnson, you know, like, he's clearly just you know, going to storm ahead, you know, hunker down, you know, acknowledge the booze. Yeah, Carrie Johnson did not sign up to be dishated. <laughs> I, I, haven't, I, haven't, I haven't actually seen it, so I can't comment. But I did see Nadine Dorries going full bore Kelly and Conway. <laughs> well, I was surprised. Yeah, because you're talking about she told me no, it wasn't booze, it was a mixture, plenty of people cheering. Yeah, no, no, su- no, it wasn't she didn't say it was a mixture. What she said was there were more people cheering than booing. Well, no. Yeah, that's absolutely not true. Yeah. Um, I'm. I mean, it tells you something that they were so rattled by what Simon was saying about the nature of the people booing that they weren't able to kind of blame it on Romaniacs because, like, I thought that's what they would have gone. Oh no, centre of London, metropolitan liberal elite. Yeah, but that 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 shit just ain't gonna fly. But yeah, but Luke, if, honestly, if you've seen the clip, you'd realise actually. So I'm going to be a pain. Before we get on to whether Johnson's survival prospects, one other thing about Jubilee, uh, Dog That Didn't Bark is obviously the whole Harry-Meghan thing. I don't want to get too much into the weeds of Harry and Meghan, but 
they have had quite a few Netflix contracts just be, be cancelled due to the garbage fire that is Netflix's finances. And as I said at the time, the break came. Whatever you say about the Royal Family, whatever you say about the Windsors, they know what they're doing. <laughs> These are people, though, you know, they haven't kept their privileges by accident or because British people are unusually servile. These people are fucking ruthless. Um, and you saw it here, Simon talking about the Duke of Cambridge reminding me of this, because, you know, they relegated uh, Harry and Meghan to the kiddies row, where all the minor royals uh, uh, have to say, you know, get off me, loser. And whereas in 2020, when there was an occasion just before lockdown, uh Prince William did not take part in a coronation of senior royals entering the cathedral. Uh, no, so as not to highlight his di differential status with Harry. Yeah, this time he did. And they weren't invited to the balcony, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, when you're out, you're out, you're out. Um, and, you know, you can come call him back like Fergie. Um, you know, these people are ruthless. Anyway, speaking of people who are ruthless... Well, they're not, are they? Yeah, or maybe not. Um, it, does, it does feel that the momentum within the Conservative Party has started to swing quite strongly against Boris Johnson. <laughs> and actually, before we go any further, you weren't on the last podcast, Simon, so have you got any thoughts about um, oh, yes. the Sue Gray report? The report you said was never coming, by the way. Yeah. I mean, I obviously I was wrong. My 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 overarching cynicism was proven wrong for once. I I, mean, I kind of feel it was sort of I think it's what we expected. I think we you know, we, it was a civil service report. It was not, not you know, it was not going to be. And I think as well a lot of the sort of air has been let out of this situation. If it had come out in January, I think it would have had a different vibe. But, you know, stories do have their natural life. And the Sue Gray report did its job of quietly, you know, coming out at a point when people weren't, you know, it got people upset about party yet again and some of the pictures came out and that. But it was it made much less impact than it would have made in, let's say, January or February. And I think I think the thing is, I mean, just to summarise what we were talking about in the last podcast, it's it it was tricky in a sense of what her conclusion was going to be has already happened. So yeah. her conclusion would have been you go and you go you should go away and investigate these breaks of lockdown law, uh, Metropolitan Police. And Metropolitan Police had already investigated them. I see like you I mean I know she's being criticized for the um not going into more detail about the ABBA karaoke party. But, like, if the Metropolitan Police have said there is no case to answer, I don't see an argument that an internal government report should investigate that to call into question the police verdict. Um, to be honest, I was always uncomfortable with the idea that a, that a civil servant should be investigating the Prime Minister's House of Residence anyway. Like, I, I, it doesn't feel like that's necessarily Sue Gray's job. Um, but I think the thing to me, I think this, 
two things there. One, which I know Simon will agree with, it does underline how incompetent the, the Metropolitan Police were. It definitely feels the Met did no investigation other than look at what Sue Gray had collated and ask people stuff in questionnaires. Um, and so the reason why uh, Boris Johnson got done um, is probably because that's the one where Sue Gray had the most evidence that he had he had broken lockdown rules. The second thing, is, and this is where I would disagree, Simon, is, um, and I think this is where if you've worked in HR or HR-adjacent jobs, you appreciate her writing style more. She is fucking pissed. Um, yes, this, is, yeah. this is not the way you write these reports, these emails, um, to, to like soothe things, to massage things. She is laying it out in the way to make Boris Johnson um, and Simon Case look as bad as possible. How the hell Simon Case has not been made to go is absolutely beyond me. Um, like the minute he had to excuse himself from this report, this inquiry, because he realised that he may be, he may have to be investigated, um, he should have gone then. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we do get a new prime minister, one of their first acts should be firing him out of a cannon. And not like yeah. you go away to collect your pension and become an, like a, a don at Oxbridge, but no, we're firing you for cause because you did a really shitty job. I'm sorry, carry on, Simon. Yeah, no, I, mean, I don't have much more to say. But I, I think the, the other thing we we didn't obviously, I don't know if this has happened since. I think it has happened since the last podcast is that both Sakir Starmer and Angela Rayner have now had um, formal questionnaires. Um, from County Durham Police. Um, now, I think that's probably one of those sort of things that they feel that it would, they would, you know, I think the police would probably get heat if that didn't happen. But it does mean that they are taking this seriously. It does increase the opportunity, the, poss- the possibility to, that uh, it will end in the, it will lead to the fun scenario of the UK having two, its two largest political parties both having leadership elections whilst the country falls into recession which is, you know, I think now a distinct possibility. And, and that, that was talked about on Twitter, and I did discover that MacDonald, and I think MacDonald and Bonalore both became leaders um, in 1922, for the sec- I think for the second time in both cases. But yeah, but like, you know, we have had a year where both party leaderships have changed, and it was within six weeks, so it was quite close. Um, obviously in an era where leadership elections didn't take quite so long. Um, to, to do a restatement of the facts as we now know them, okay, that, 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 that didn't take long. Talking about the speculation as reported by Tim Shipman. Um, <laughs> we, now, it should be said, Tim Shipman is legendarily well-sourced within the Conservative Party. Less so uh, the Starmer marital home. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Ooh. Move on. Move on. Move, moving on. Um, um ba- basically that that uh, like I uh, in our in a WhatsApp group we have for friends last I think it was last Saturday, I said, is it me? Does it feel the mood has changed against Johnson? Yeah. Because you did have this trickle 
of Tory MPs come out against him, which is one of those ones. And again, like it is one of these ones where, like, you know, we are free goons talking about politics that through Twitter, TV, and in the case of Simon, because I know he listens to the same program, the wireless. Don't uh, anymore, actually, because I like oh, no. myself more. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm more, li- I'm much more likely to find listening to either Six Music or Radio Three in the mornings. Um, not, not even the wireless. Um, but um, obviously, a lot of oh, no. If you actually look at the like the dictionary definition of politics, it's distribution of power. Distribution of power is about personal relationships. So there's a lot of politics that you really can't see or feel if you're not there. Particularly when it's intra-party politics. Yeah, and and when it's like, you know, are you going to knife the leader in the back? Are you not? And, you know, this this is one where, like, we are more reliant on, you know, what people are reporting, what's happening. But, like, it felt on the the day of the Sue Gray report, Johnson would kind of go away with it. Um, but then you start to get this trickle of Tory MPs, and that has continued this week. But Parliament is in recess, and I can't find a quote where I saw it. But I'm sure Garon, uh, uh, what's his name? Brady. Graham, Graham Brady. 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 I'm sure I saw a quote back in February. February or March, where Graham Brady said he would not, no, it would be February, because that's the Whitson break, where Brady said he would not look at the at the letters coming in um, during the parliamentary recess, which actually makes sense. A, because, you know, I know politicians like to pretend that they're working just as hard during parliamentary recess as they are when Parliament is sitting. But, like, this is kind of meant to be their holiday. So I'm sure he's got stuff he'd rather be doing, um, including Mrs Brady. Um, But also, you can't have the vote of no confidence when Parliament isn't sitting according to Tory rules. So... You know, if he was to that, announce that, that, that being that being said, well, the nineteen twenty two committee can basically make its own rules whenever it yes, wants. Yes, but you can't physically do the vote in no confidence because you True. they have okay. to they have to come in and vote. True. Um. Um. So, and you'd be ruining all Tory MPs' holiday. Uh, holiday, and you know, nineteen twenty two committee is primarily about the interests of Tory backbenchers. And I don't think they'd ruin Tory backbenchers this holiday. So, like, if you if you were to announce a vote of no confidence, you would then have this hanging over for days on end. So I think what people think is, is that the threshold has been reached and that on Monday, Brady will announce that the threshold has been reached and then we will have the, the vote of no confidence on Wednesday. Um... Whether that's the case or not, who knows? Um, I think it is. I mean, a lot of people are making a point that we are approaching the rough area of the number of people who are declared before May had, and there's a lot more undeclared letters um, then. 
that ratio is actually a lot was a lot closer than under Ian Duncan Smith, where hardly anybody had gone public with submitting letters, um, even after, even when he they hit the threshold to call a vote no confidence. Um, so the honest answer is we don't know, but it is, sorry, it is worth saying under May you did have quite a few of these scares where people thought the, le- the letters were in and it turned out they weren't. And actually, it may have been the letters were in, but Brady has created this system where he will ring round and say, we have now reached a threshold. Are you sure you want your letters to still count? Just to make sure you don't have somebody who wrote a letter in a fit of rage who is now over it and doesn't mind the the, the, the leader staying in post. So I suppose the but, question, but, is, but, the question sorry, is, Luke, do you do you think the threshold has been reached? And do you think we get a vote of no confidence on, on Wednesday? Well, the thing is, the thing is, if, she, if Tim Shipman is anywhere close to being right, not only has the threshold been reached, but it's been reached with quite a bit of room to spare. Because he's saying, what, 67 letters are in? They only need 54. So even if Brady is doing his ring round, it would take quite a few MPs to change their mind, not to trigger a vote. What do you think, Simon? No, I think it has. I th- Because I think, and it's not just like listening to Tim Shipman, who, you know, on this stuff, I, I generally, you know, I, t- I trust that his sources are quite good. It's that the big... I think a lot of Tory MPs, you know, with the publication Sue Gary report, they haven't got any kind of excuse for want of a better term. You know, they 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 could say, "Oh, wait for the Sue Gray report, wait for the Metropolitan." You know, and they've turned. And it turns out that those two th- those two that the Met have reported, the Sue Gray report has reported, and people are still pissed off. And it's become it's becoming more generalised now. And I think a lot of Conservative MPs. Are basically probably going back to their constituencies they're talking to their local parties they're talking to their constituents they're they're feeling the wrath and the anger and you know yeah I mean, it, sorry a lot of it is about is i think they feel and i don't know how true this is that if they get rid of boris johnson things will get better for them personally we don't know how you know how true that's going to be but that's a very dangerous place for a prime minister to be in the thing is, as well, they're looking at some truly dreadful polling. I mean, like, sort of 1994, 1995 levels of bad polling. And the thing is, in, in those periods, you could make the argument that, you know, Tony Blair is, you know, Tony Blair is Tony Blair, is New Labour, New Britain, and it really wouldn't matter who the Conservatives put up against them at that point. You can't make that argument with Keir Starmer or West Streeting or any of the people that are probably going to follow him. So you probably would, if you're a Conservative, you've got to be thinking, actually, we probably would be doing better with another leader. And I really am, and particularly if you're, if you're either in, if you're either in a metropolitan seat, you're looking down the barrel of being voted out by the Lib Dems, or if you're a Red Wolf seat, you're looking at losing your seat, you're looking at it's staring into the abyss of losing the Labour. And also, if I'm a Tory MP, there comes a point in politics, and it's very hard, it's always very hard to know 
it's always much easier to know when this point is in retrospect. But there does always come there does come a point in politics where people just stop listening to what you're saying. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if if um, if things change. I mean, John Major in 1997 was you know the economy. The economy was booming. Um, you know he had traditionally he had what any prime minister running for re-election would kill for and it didn't matter because people had just stopped listening to it and i think we've reached that point with boris johnson it doesn't matter he can't turn this around because nobody trusts a word he says and no one is listening to him anymore daniel Fink and also they don't have a booming economy the economy is in a lot of trouble daniel finkelstein has a very funny story of um going to um the Republican National Convention or C-SPAN, you know, some American thing, and being quizzed about it being like 90, I don't, it wouldn't be the Republican National Convention because this was 90, I'm pretty sure this was 95, and um, being quizzed by a Republican about what was happening with the British Tories, and they were like, well, you know, we're going to we're going to lose the election, and after that we're, we're going to have to ditch the leader and modernise to better reach a, a change country. And so like, the American was listening quite intently to this and then just went, well, why not do that now? You know, if you know that's what you've got to do, yeah, why not do it now before you've lost? And the thing is, and I think this is why it's particularly relevant for the Tories is, and I think it was relevant in 97 as well, but I think there's an issue that stopped them, which we'll get back to, is I think I think the election is going to be an election where it'll be very fine margins between the Tories getting absolutely pumped and being reduced to like 160, 170, 180. And then being like 280, 290, 300, even if they're forced out of office in a good position to 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 take office back at the first opportunity. Because what's going to happen is they're going to be fighting on these two fronts. They're going to be trying to defend seats they won against Labour and maybe in some areas, particularly big, Brexit party votes, win seats of Labour in the north of England and some of the rougher parts of the Midlands. And then in the south of England, they're going to be defending these huge majorities um, against the Lib Dems. And there's a version of this where they just eke out victories in the north of England. Um... And yes, their vote plummets in the South, but it, it, it's basically plummets in a way where majorities that used to be 20, 15, 10,000 become 10, 5,000. So the Tory vote does go down quite a bit, but their vote is very efficiently organised. And they actually, you know, they may even get a, a majority of the seats. Um, basically, you know, two, no, two thousand and five. Um, but they, but they just get to be New Labour this time. Or there, it's like nineteen ninety seven, where the Tories are fighting a war on all these fronts. They massively underperform um, based on 
converting votes into seats and they just get shellacked. Um, and I think, you know, this is where if, if replacing Johnson gets you, gains you two, three, four percentage points in the right areas, it's worth doing. Now, I think, and I think the, the other thing is with Johnson is the reason why you couldn't get rid of major, and this is kind of contrary to what is developing as the conventional wisdom on this matter. The, the thing that saved major was that people looked at the likely alternatives and one half the party was horrified. So if you were a Europhile, you'd be terrified at the idea of Michael Portillo becoming prime minister. If you were a Thatcherite, you're a skeptic, you'd be terrified at the thought of Michael Heseltine, let alone Ken Clark becoming leader. Um, and Major could kind of exploit both sides' hatred of the other. Yes, you know, it's not really that now. Like, A, because I don't think most Tory MPs believe enough for there to be these stark ideological divisions. They got Jeremy Hunt, that was clearly a massive COVID hawk until he realised COVID hawkery doesn't work and it's unpopular. And now he's like, well, maybe I wouldn't have done lockdowns in March of 2020. Like, like shit you wouldn't have. You know what he increasingly reminds me of? It's the old line about Edmund Ducan, where somebody asks him the time and he goes, what time would you like? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is the thing. Is I mean, I, I suppose that the one thing Johnson has is Johnson believes he should be prime minister, and he really, really believes it, which means he believes one more thing than anybody else in the Tory party. Oh, oh. Um, but yeah, I look. I mean, it should never have gone to this point. He should have gone in January. That means you should, probably should be skeptical about the Tory party's ability to get rid of him. I think it is worth saying that we've a party has never got rid of a leader without um, resignations from the cabinet. So you look at um, you look at the failed attempt on John Major. Um, obviously, John Redwood left. Look at the successful attempt on Thatcher. Jeffrey Howe left. Uh, Edward Heath, Thatcher. I don't think actually Thatcher technically left the Shadow Cabinet. I think she challenged while still being in it, but she she, she spearheaded the 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 push. Um, likewise, you know, you, you know, with May, you know, it was more like attritional, but there have been loads and loads of reclamations from her cabinet leading up to it. And I think you know, she was basically told if you push the point of these talks of Labour any further, you're going to get even more resignations, you know, the jig is up type thing. I, but... you know, if, if, if this vote of no confidence happens and is successful, it will be the first time in British political history, um, I know, even like, even say Bonner Law, you know, getting rid of Lloyd George and Austin Chamberlain's duopoly of the coalition in 1922 you know Bonner Law was a former leader returning to spearhead 
um, a peasant's revolt. You know, if you do get this amorphous blob of backbenchers successfully getting rid of Johnson, that will be something quite new in British political history. It's never been successfully done. So because the Tories have not got rid of him, when it's been clear since January, they should get rid of him. And because there hasn't been anybody from the cabinet willing to put their head above the power pit and say, no, this guy has to go, I resign. I, I would say you have to assume he will survive the vote of no confidence, even if it comes next week. The one, the one, th- the one thing I would say, and we've talked, you and I have talked about this offline, uh, well, is I think oh, everything you just said is right, but there is a caveat to it that the political team around Johnson really is the gang that can't shoot straight. <laughs> yes. I mean, I, I, I mean, Gordon Brown, Gordon Brown's Downing Street operation was underpowered, but these guys are underpowered in the sense that it was too small. But these guys are just mind-bogglingly bad at politics. Well, I'll bring someone in in a second, but like, I think the thing I'd add to that is. What what they did, what Brown had, Brown's team had, is Brown. Yeah. Like, Brown knew the parliamentary game. He was a parliamentary bruiser. Um, Johnson isn't really a creature of parliament. I, he doesn't really understand it. He doesn't particularly like it. And he doesn't seem to have figures close to him that have the same um, and so like I think there's basically always been an issue with Johnson where the people closest to him are posh Tories who tended to vote Remain and the people who have become his ideological outriders are um, are Brexiteers which means he's, there is a dysfunction at the heart of his machine, a fault line that I think was always going to not do him much favours because he doesn't know which way to look. Is he is he the London mayor of 2022, of 2012? Or is he the guy snarling about Remainers and woke politics? Um, now, obviously, the answer is he's neither. He should be the guy who led vote leave and this is where I think that synthesis of the two impulses has always been his most effective pitch but I don't think there's anyone close to him with the possible exception of Michael Gove that actually believes in that like people talk about Nadine Dyers people forget Nadine, correct me wrong Luke, but Nadine Dyers was a Remainer yeah she was people always forget this about Nadine Dyers um, well, you know, the thing is Nadine Dyers will, will... You know, we'll, we'll fight to the last ditch for Boris Johnson because she knows there's no way she's going to get in a cabinet with any other, with anybody else's prime minister. But apparently she was a good public health minister. It's it's so sad. Like, she, you know, like she'd actually, she was actually proving people wrong in that job. And like, what she, I mean, this is the thing I think, because I think, I think there's a, Danger with Boris Johnson. He he is putting himself 
on a lot of like 80 20 arguments with the parliamentary party or 70 30 arguments the parliamentary party like what they're doing to channel 4 what they're doing to the bbc is it, it no there is nothing to it but cultural vandalism um um and you know you're talking about the poll ratings and i, I predicted this last week everyone's forgotten that these were the first paychecks where the full weight of the um tax tax cuts had been factored in um, well, um a tax rise had been factored in so i think for a lot of people um you know it has not been glad tidings it has been holy holy mother of god how much less am i earning than previously <laughs> um so yeah um simon thoughts i think i think there's not a lot to it. I think the, thing, the, 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 the Nadine Doris point is, a, is, a, is an interesting one because I think it does mean, you know, it's a very, I'm not sure how much respect, like, you, historically obviously correct that basically usually challenges to a leader that are successful are triggered by cabinet resignations, or at least they have cabinet resignations at the heart of them. But, you know, this is not, I don't think this is a massively respected or, you know, Beloved cabinet. Um, you've got what is it? So I'm just trying to think. You know, Rishi Sunak, whose staff has clearly fallen fast in the last few months. You've got Nadine Doris, who is a bit of a joke. You've got Pretty Patel, who's not quite as the isn't quite the least popular member of the uh, cabinet. But that's because Boris Johnson's standing is so low now. You know. There are a couple of people in the cabinet that I think, you know, are, do garner respect. Ben Wallace, the defence secretary, being the prime example. But I think the main reason he garners respect is that he doesn't seem to say anything very much. Um, you know, because... I've got to say, Simon, the scuttlebutt is he'll be next secretary general of NATO as well. Well, I mean, if that's the case, I mean, he's the leading, you know, he's the most popular... Conservative, according to Conservative Homes, regular yeah, but rankings. they don't know him though because he's he's no, he's not just a Remainer; he's a Europhile. Yeah, mm. um, like he's I mean, close, I mean, again, again, he's close to Johnson. I mean, this is this, no, this is the secret story of why Johnson lost in two thousand and sixteen because I, no, John, no, I know this is a thing. It's me and Stephen Bush who will die on this hill. Johnson is a Brexiteer, and he's a very passionate Brexiteer, um, but he's probably a, a relatively moderate Brexiteer. You know, he's he's a sovereignty shag, he's a sovereignty shagger. Um, he 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 has not, you know, he's an, he's an, he's he's the Angli Anglicanism of 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 Brexit. You know, like he's a type of guy that wants to like, you know, take the the aqueous communitar. And just translate it into English. Um, whereas us, who are a bit more, you know, blood and thunder with our uh, outerism, uh, we we want to actually do stuff with leaving the European Union and change things. And um, you know, the, the the big secret of Boris Johnson is, is most of his friends are Remainers. His obviously his family is Remain quite passionately, and he did he did that big Telegraph article where he was talking about you know. Norway looks nice this time of year, and that's what caused every caused all the Brexiteers to abandon him. 
Um, but yeah, but like Ben Wallace is personally close to Boris Johnson. Um, is probably going to be the last person in the cabinet to abandon Boris Johnson. Um, other than Nadine Doris. But yeah, apparently he's been lined up for NATO. Yeah, because you saying he's popular on Pacific like apparently like you know the the other the other NATO defense ministers and particularly of the Americans, you know, who overwhelmingly, you know, carry a big stick when it comes to this, have been very impressed with Ben Wallace, apparently. Um so yeah, it looks I would you would if you were if you were running a poll, he would be heavy favourite, I think, to be the next. And it is kind of our time because we've not had one since Jeffrey Robinson, right? Yeah, George Robertson. I always get those mixed up. Um, uh, but also, well, no, I, you you would you would think actually now they're back in the integrated command structure, you would think it would go to a French person. Yeah, but they get but they get the um, IMF. That's true. They yeah they they tend to get the IMF. We don't tend to. They always get the IMF, even when we had to fire a French person because he got uh, he got caught abusing some poor um, hotel maid. Hang on, they... actually, wasn't he acquitted? Yeah, in a free. <laughs> Do you believe that? I don't know. I don't know enough. To oh yeah, I it. also believe it. If uh, Strauss Kahn, if Strauss Kahn's lawyers are listening. You yeah. were acquitted and you did not do it. On the other hand, when he was accused of abusing that poor uh, <laughs> maid, um, 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 yeah, he the also... FBI made him do a proper perp walk. I <laughs> love the FBI for stuff like that. But he got replaced by another French person. Yeah, who is now head of the ECB, by the way. Um, but like, you know, yeah, so like... Um, it's kind of our time, but but I know as you know, Luke, from sometimes going to uh, IR conferences, you don't get well thought of in uh, global security circles if you if you if you're a Brexit. No, but you get some interesting conversations. No the amount of shock looks, you know, I might as well, I might as well I might as well have a green mohawk. <laughs> and no one accuses uh, uh, Ben Wallace of interesting conversation. Anyway, I think it also is like Ben. I think as well. I think with Ben Wallace, when you actually like again, like it's 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 almost like two sides of the same coin. Coin like he's very popular uh, because of um, you know he is this kind of taking this hawkish line on Ukraine. It's not, it's, it's not take... it's, sorry, well, in fairness, it's not just that he's done quite a lot of legwork in terms of coordinating sort of various national contributions towards Ukraine. Oh, no, no, no. Well, he, he has clearly been very competent. Yeah. But like, he would want to do this in every war. And I'm not sure even a Tory party. Is is up is is up for that? Um, you know this. You know this is one of the things. You know Ken Clark was making for Michael Gove saying that we, we'd be at war with everybody. And Michael Gove was prime minister. Like you know, there, there's there's more an isolationist yeah, yeah, yeah. tinge to the Tory party than. Some and I mean, actually, we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves because even if a vote no confidence is triggered, you know, 
But if, because normally what happens is, like, unless the, the sitting prime minister carries a really strong majority, they resign. I, but I don't think that will happen with Boris Johnson. If he gets 51%, he'll stay on. Can we just say, that is, that is never, like, I think people misremember what happened with Thatcher and Heath. Yeah. Um, Major and May did not get strong majorities. They both got in the low 60s. I mean, Major just so happened to have cleared the threshold he apparently set himself by three votes. And if you believe that, you will believe anything. You know, clearly he retrofitted um, a baseline for which he, after he knew the votes he had, he had got. Um, the reason May eventually quit is the 1922 committee said, look, we are going to make you go through this again this summer. And she knew that she'd be faced with cabinet resignations if a vote of no confidence was called. Likewise, with Thatcher and Heath, that was a different system where it was subsequent rounds until you got a significant, a, a, a enough of a margin of victory. Thatcher beat, actually beat Heath in the first round, but not by enough to win outright. Thatcher, did, Thatcher actually beat Hesseltine. This is, what, this is the thing that people always forget. Thatcher not only beat Hesseltine, she actually came within three votes of securing the necessary supermajority. But she was then told by the cabinet, um, you know, if if you don't resign, um, you're gonna you're gonna lose badly because people want you gone, and you know maybe one of us will resign and challenge you. I don't, I don't think anybody was explicit about that, but I think it was kind of intimated to her. But yeah, but I I I I think May. Uh, no, well, actually, no. To be fair, I think May may have gone for the good of the party actually um but i i think major would have clung on because he hated everybody else in the tory party and not and not unreasonably yeah but you still haven't really touched on my point which is if but it's not enough for boris johnson Boris Johnson has to lose a vote, no confidence. Yes. Winning narrowly is not enough to force him out. No, but my, I suppose my point is, is that I think that's true for almost every leader. Almost every leader will take a narrow victory as enough for them to, uh, to, to, to continue. In my opinion. Okay. But, um, but do you think he's going to lose? That's the question, because I, I think he'll win. I think it could be quite close. Um, the thing you remember is there's such a big payroll vote, so it almost yeah. But the payroll vote doesn't exist because it's an it's a you know it's a secret ballot. Um, no, that's true. But like, so I suppose my point is going to be it's like it almost can't be close if he has any support on the back benches, and if he can. If he can hold on to the loyalty of the payroll vote, he should win quite comfortably. If he has no support on the back benches and he cannot count on the loyalty of the payroll vote, he should lose fairly conclusively. Like, you know, like Eamon Duncan Smith, like it, it actually taken a toy party quite a long time 
to get to the point of calling a vote of no confidence in Ian Duncan Smith. And Ian Duncan Smith had been acting really weirdly in the run-up to it. Like, yeah. there was the terrible conference speech. There was you know, someone asking... Oh, yeah, the quiet man is turning up the vote you. You had the whole thing of, you know, what happens? There's a chairman of the 1922 committee. Bring tells you those letters um, have came in. Oh, no, put them back in the in the desk, otherwise I will shoot you. Um, you know, like he'd been, you know, he had the whole, uh, I mean, it, it turned out not to be true, but the whole allegations of, sca- of a scandal involving the employment of, it, of his wife in his parliamentary office. And it took him forever to get the, the votes. And then he lost in an absolute landslide. You know, he, owned, he, no, he, he, he got 75 um, uh, votes in, uh, uh, no, of, of confidence compared to, what, 90-odd of no confidence? Those are the exact numbers. Well done. Wow! I wasted my childhood. God, <laughs> you really did. But the problem is, the fact I knew that, as did it's that's really tragic. The most irrelevant vote in British political history. So, so I, I know what I know. I know what I remember. Um, there was um, the independent sketch writer at the time it was called Michael Brown, who was a, no like Matthew Powers, a former Tory MP, and he had been predicting for several months that Michael Howard would be elected um, unopposed um, as Ian Duncan Smith's replacement. And I thought, you know what, that makes a lot of sense. I think that's right. And I, and I would talk politics to my form tutor because I'd be, I'd be in sixth form. And so I'd go to him like in September, October, and go, you know, and he'd be like, oh, because he, I was a Tory at the time. So he'd be like, oh, you know, do you know, do you, do, you, do you think they're going to get rid of him? I was like, yeah, no, I think they will at some point. He's he's done. And I said, like, well, who do you think will replace him? I was like, well, I think it'll be Mike. No, I've heard this theory, and I think it will be Michael Howard on a pose. And he, and he would make fun of me. Like, he'd be like, oh, no, you're talking nonsense. This is not the 1960s anymore, 1950s. They'd have to have a contest. There's no way they can do it on a post. And I always remember going into form the, the day after that announcement, and you got like David Davis and all the other major candidates rushing out to say that they love Michael Howard and they want Michael Howard to be the new uh, leader. Like, <laughs> like, well, no, basically, like, well done, <laughs> well done, Nostradamus. Touche. <laughs> But I also remember, and I think this is why I don't listen to the Day program. I do remember listening to the Today program around this time when they called the election of Michael Howard the least contentious Tory election since the replacement of, of Howard Macmillan by Alec Douglas Hume. And my what? mind my mind exploded. It was like what? that's like the most contentious. <laughs> that's like that almost caused the constitutional crisis. Like, what the fuck is wrong with you, BBC? <laughs> Seriously, that, that's like those people that vote Dennis Healy as the best prime minister of all time. It's just, I like, by the way, another thing, if you're looking for, like, a intersection of royalty and uh, monarchy, that whole thing, there's a crown. Simon, I don't know if you've watched a crown. I have, yes. Do they That's go in? Really do they go into the selection of Alec Douglas Hume in any detail? 
No, not not like. Oh, for fuck's sake! The one, the one time in the post-war period where the monarchy has been really politically relevant in Britain. There's what? There's a time in Australia as well. Yes, but you see, the thing is, the thing you have to understand, the thing about this is that the the, the crown needs to keep the monarch, the royal family, on side, and the best way of doing that is to be really uncontroversial. But they don't keep him on side. They, they, the monarchy hates them because all the stuff about Diana. But like, but like, like the monarchy is actually important. Like, this is why I stopped watching it after the first season because I just couldn't bear the fact that like it was so focused on what's happening in the palace when that was objectively not very important. And it's like, but like that's important. Like the monarchy actually played an important role at that point. Actually, you know, you know what? I've been reading. I've been re- I've been reading Peter Hennessy's book on uh, the early nineteen sixties, and the chapter on that is fascinating. Oh yeah, well, really go on. G- g- give us a praise. No, no, no. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just saying by the by the book, like because it's it's a really it's a really good book. Um, but yes, um, yeah. So that will blow my mind. Can I can I say uh, so? I think we're based. I mean, Simon, do you have any thoughts on whether he's gonna? Face a vote of no confidence, whether he's going to win a vote of no confidence. I think he will face a vote of no confidence. I think he may very... I think the, if I were a betting man, and I'm notably not, I think he probably would win that vote of no confidence, but not particularly widely. But as other people have said, I think I don't think that would stop him. Um, but I think then the question becomes whether essentially... Very rarely does a vote of no confidence... Well, a vote of no confidence is very unlikely to improve his sort of standing in the Conservative Party. So, you know, I think the clock is ticking, but I don't necessarily think the bomb's going to go off this week. Uh, and it should be uh, like, people, again, this is where people, people, I mean, I, I, there was a article in the Times, I think it may have been by Tim Shipman, that was pretty fucking awful because it kept, it was conflating the old system with the current system. And, and what a lot of people don't understand is, the Tories created this weird system where the leader had to be had to resubmit for election every year. So that's the context why actually I think Major's leadership election of 1995 did strengthen John Major because he was going to face one anyway because you just needed two people to to support a candidate to face them in November. And, you know, Alan Clark outlines this fairly conclusively, sorry, fairly persuasively in his history of the Tory party. What Major was doing was beating to the punch a plot to, for, for Redwood to resign in advance of the budget. Because remember, this is when you had, well, we now again have November budgets. But this was a period when we had November budgets so it was basically a way of of of, of bringing forward the um, the leadership election. That you no, know, he had a he had a no a, a a chairman of the nineteen twenty two committee that liked and supported him, um, and so agreed that um, the leadership election major had provoked stood in place of the one that would have happened normally it, late in November. And obviously, by the time you get to 1996, no, November 1996, 
your six months before, you know, six, seven months before the election, the leadership, the, the, no, the likely leadership candidates are thinking, you know what, let's let John take take the take the rap for losing terribly to Tony Blair. We'll pick up the pieces afterwards. Whereas it, you're not at that point with, with no. Boris Johnson. Having the leadership election is crossing a Rubicon. Um, even no, even if he wins this and the Toy Party sticks to there being another year before another vote of no confidence, which then obviously, as we talked about, they didn't stick to with May, um, there would still be plenty of time to have another vote of no confidence and get rid of him because, you know, June 2023 would be 18 months before when the next, uh, no, sorry, seven, uh, 19 months before the latest, pot, the last possible date of the next election. So, yeah, and no, I, think, I think you're right. Can I just have a bit of a whinge about the toy leadership ele- election process? Go on. So this is a bit nerdy, but like, because there is a lot to like about the toy leadership election process. I think it very much reflects the fact that it was written by Archie Norman, who is a real person, not just a politician. Um, you know, it has a very clear uh, vote and no confidence procedure. Even more impressively, they made sure to close off a loophole to stop a leader doing a John Major to circumvent the vote no confidence procedure. The Tory leader resigns. They are also barred from the subsequent uh, leadership election. So, like, clearly it's been written with quite a degree of thought, um, unlike the Labour leadership election process. I do think, as so often happens in the history of British politics, people excessively praise the Tory party because it's not the clown car the Labour Party is. Um, like, for example, Tory party isn't particularly ruthless. Boris Johnson is still fucking there. If they were ruthless, he would have gone in January. <laughs> They'd be um, Liberal Democrats. As well, yes, yeah, yeah, the Liberal Democrats, of course, the example. I mean, we could go through the whole history of proving a toy party isn't overly um, ruthless. But, but more, more particularly on their leadership system, one of the things you kept having people say is the toy party could never have a Corbyn because you have the parliamentary party play this uh, whittering down, um, uh, winnowing out the fields, a, a, a role but actually if you look at what happened in both of the previous two leadership elections you absolutely could have a, a Corbyn situation in the Tory party because in both uh, 2016 2019 you had a really strong front runner amongst MPs that got comfortably over two thirds the parliamentary party in a free horse race. But because the second place candidate has to go forward to the membership, you get a can no, you literally get, I mean, I don't know the exact figures off the top of my head, and I, I, I definitely don't know these, but you'd have a candidate with 200 MPs supporting them, going up a candidate with like 50 or 60 MPs. Um, on the on the on the on the last round, and then there'd be a pool of other MPs 
which even if you assume they all go to the second place candidate, would still be a minority. No, there'd still be a very poor minority of MPs supporting them. And in reality, a lot of those third party, uh, the third candidate supporters, would have gone and supported the uh, the first place candidate. So actually, it is extremely possible the Tory party, with their current rules, could be plunged into the situation where no, you had a a a a a front runner with like 75 percent, eighty percent of the parliamentary party, but you have some dickhead who gets you know twenty no who who gets no who has enough of the parliamentary party uh, to get to the final to get to the membership ballot and refuses to you know, do what Andrea Leadsom does and just, just withdraw, um, but actually resonates with the membership enough to, to win. Now, the only reason why that doesn't happen is because actually the membership in the Tory party is more likely to take the MPs' lead than the Labour party, because you know, the Tory party, was unlike Labour, which was a mass movement because, before it was a parliamentary party, the Tory Party was a parliamentary party before it had a before it was a membership organization. Um, but actually, there is this flaw in the Tory leadership election, which could very easily be resolved, which is you know, you have to have no if no, basically almost like there's a mercy rule. If a candidate on the final ballot of MPs hits no passes say 60 66 percent the membership rounds called off and you have a you no know, maybe you have a you know a referendum on a new leader like labor had a like labor considered for gordon brown where it's like this is a leader the mps have chosen um no are you happy with this leader or do we have to do it again um, but yeah, I, I think the toy, I think there is actually this flaw in the toy leadership election process that they'd do well to resolve before it blows up in their face. Personally, actually, I don't know if you remember this, Luke, when it, when they looked at changing their rules. Did you US... gonna come up with the Peter Lilly rule? Did oh my god, nerd, <laughs> nerd. Do you want to say with the Peter Lilly suggestion? The was? Peter Lilly rule would be to reverse the current process. So reverse the, polarity. Yeah, it would reverse the polarity. So all leadership candidates would go out to a vote of the entire membership of the Conservative Party. It would be whittled down to two, the two leading candidates, and then the MPs would pick the winner. Yeah, I, I think he said it might not be two. It might be like three, or no, like it. But like the membership would play the whistling down role, either yeah. way. And I and I think that's the right way of doing it personally. Yeah. The MP should have the decision. Yeah. I mean, let's be honest, if it's up to me and you, Luke, the MPs would just pick the leader. Yeah. Of, be, all yeah. Par- of all parties. Of all parties. Yeah. What do you think, Simon? Well, my, my question there, I'm always I'm always baffled. I mean, I'm not a member of a political party at the moment, but like being a member of a political party does always feel like pay, basically paying to do voluntary labour um, <laughs> all the time. And I, so I think the question would be, you know, if you didn't, if you don't, did I know for a long period of time, I'm not quite sure why anyone would be a member of a political party if you didn't have any 
chance to influence the leadership, <laughs> to be perfectly honest, unless you actively wanted to become a local councillor or an MP. Yeah, I, I think. <laughs> I think. I mean, like, look, Luke, you're not you're not involved in Tory party, <laughs> but you give money to the Tory party because you believe in what yeah. they're trying to achieve and, in and Scotland. Also, and also, because if you ever try canvassing in a wheelchair, which I have, it's a miserable experience. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I've got to say, Luke. I, I think that's just because canvassing is a miserable experience. Okay, it may be an yeah, extra, I'll, I'll, I'll be it honest, may be an extra think, miserable experience. Yeah, I, th- I, think, I think it makes a miserable experience worse, but yeah, canvassing is not that much fun. Yeah, um, I think I think, I think think the reality is, and I think... But Labour... I mean, but I mean the, you're at the answer to the question, sorry, when it's generations of marriages have been formed that way. <laughs> Well, yes. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, I, I, so, okay, so this is, that's another, I mean, that, that's not, you know, that's not a thing I need to worry about these days. So, you know, yeah. Okay, take that off the list of reasons um, to join the Labour Party or other the, political organisations. But I, no, in all honesty, like, I think, I think Labour's actually a good example of this, which is where I think Labour's democratic culture. <clears throat> okay, yeah, that, that, uh, I could hear the laughter in my head when I said Labour's democratic <laughs> culture. Labour's civic culture. Okay, yeah, still laughter. Labour's internal culture. <laughs> okay, no laughter there. Labour's internal culture. <laughs> Did you that? need that as a joke deliberately? Because that's a very good joke. No, I, I thought of it as I was saying it. Yeah. Like I literally heard laughter in my head. Um, but like Labour's internal culture, I think, has noticeably deteriorated since they started electing their leader. Um First with the Electoral College and then then like one member, one vote in Electoral College and then with the current system. Because before that, like the leader of the Parliamentary Labour Party was like first amongst equals. And so like the head of the TUC, the head of the NEC. Mm. Yeah, they weren't as important as the leader of the Parliamentary Labour Party or, or like the various uh, party officials. But there was some sense that there was a recognition that the Labour movement was a many-headed beast and the various parts of the movement had their own leadership, had their own perspective. And, the, and even though the parliamentary party led the movement, because the, obviously the Labour movement is, is founded on the principle of, parliamentary to, of parliamentarism, that they should take heed of what the TUC, the NEC, um, um, was, uh, other, other, other officials were saying. Fabian, Fabians. Yeah, yeah, stuff like that. Whereas the minute you move to um, everybody gets a vote for the leader, that becomes the leader, and the leader can just ignore everybody else because they clearly have the biggest, baddest, best mandate of anybody within that movement. And I really do think that's just coarsened um, the the Labour Party as a civic institution. Um, and you, and and again, like I know I've never, vo- I mean, I for various reasons of both lethargy and incompetence, I've never voted in a party parliamentary leadership election. And the reality is, I'm not qualified to, because you're trying to judge people you've not had to work with like the quality no the reasons david cameron was a good leader were not apparent to me primarily because i never fucking heard of the guy until he was running for leader you know 
the reasons Jeremy Corbyn got to the ballot, but John McDonald, John McDonald didn't, were com- no, com- I was com- completely removed from those considerations um, be- because I'm not in either of those people's personal social circle. It's ab- absolute madness to devolve, devolve to members um, a decision that is so much based on the personal qualities of individual politicians. It honestly makes more sense to give... I mean, I wouldn't agree with this either, but it honestly makes more sense to let members decide policy, which at least is on some abstract level, um, than letting them choose who is the leader. And I think people know this, because whenever it becomes it comes to um, a, a political party is going to choose... It's, um, you know, it's going to choose a new prime minister. People kick and scream about the idea that, you know, Tory or Labour Party members get this privileged position. Well, it's like, well, it doesn't matter. No, Tory, MP, Tory members chose the next prime minister in 2005. It just took five years for, the, for that decision to bear fruit. Labour members chose the next Prime Minister in 1994. It just took three years for that decision to take fruit. Um, yeah, so I, 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 I would go, I would go back. I would go back to um, um, MPs having control and um, um, over their party's leadership, and I'd have. Well, to be honest, I wouldn't have. I mean, again, I think this is where, like me me be, being a, a Tory when I was younger kind of comes in because personally I think the whole point of joining a political party is you shut up and do what the MPs say which is why I'm not a member of a political party because it's not something that seems really interesting in me but if you want a mass movement like Labour the different aspects of that mass movement should have their 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 representatives who have the ear of the leader, which is the leader of the parliamentary party. All right. Anyway, on that bombshell. Yeah, we're not going to get round to talking about Wakefield. We'll have to wait. We'll have to wait uh, for that. I mean, actually, before we go, so we, we should say this. So the one debate, and this is the one reason why I think we may not get a vote of no confidence next week. But I think we're all of the agreement that we kind of trust Tim Shipman. Um. Which, you know, I'm just saying, you know, he doesn't know when his own book's going to come out. You know, like, you know, yeah, the release date for that book has changed more times than mine. He, uh, makes, <laughs> he makes me look professional. Um, but the one, the, the, I suppose the one argument would be is actually the best time to do this leadership election, this threat and confidence, would be after the two by elections, uh, Wakefield and Tiverton. Yeah. Um, now my argument would be, uh, well, you could only do that if he lo- if he loses both, um, because otherwise he will parrot whichever whichever one he managed to win. He would use that as the argument that you should keep him in place. If it was if you were a Tory MP and you were deciding when to put in your letter, and let's imagine you were the fifty fourth. Would you wait before or after the by-elections? 
I'd, I'd, I'd just do it as soon as possible. I think I think I, I think I would also do it before the bar because what we're hearing from the ground, particularly in Wakefield, is that Boris Johnson is the primary reason people are not voting Conservative. So even if there's a you know, if you keep him in, if you can, you have a chance of getting rid of him in post. There is at least a chance for the Conservative candidate in Wakefield to go. Well, we've got rid of that, and here are the here are the things we're doing. It might not save him, but it might start. It might turn a disappointing result. It might make, make a result not a complete disaster, but just a bit disappointing. And I think there's a good chance they'll save Tiverton. because it's quite interesting. Like they've got a pretty good candidate, but they yeah. don't. They don't let her do media because they know she'll be asked about the vote of no confidence. And like when she has been asked about it. She is not endorsing Boris Johnson. I mean, that would be. I mean, that would be the bad result. Like she comes in and she's the final vote to uh, get them over the line for voting no confidence. <laughs> that would be extremely funny. It but, would. Um, I agree that this should have been done a long time ago. I think there's there's so much chance he does. Deli- I mean, the thing is, like the Lib Dem should not win Tiverton. Like no, I think, no. I think, and I think Wakefield. If, it's, if they just lose Wakefield, I think you can say, look, we literally had a paedophile as our previous MP. It's not Boris Johnson's fault. Um, um, and, I, and I think, you know, that might not be unreasonable, to be honest. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I would do it now and, um, and uh, hope you can get rid of him. The um, thing, the, the thing about, because I've, I've been seeing, I've been seeing this and I think it's a really bad take. You've got a bunch of people going, oh, yeah, well, Tiverton, you know, it's the Southwest. Um, it's a by-election. Lib Dems are good at winning by-elections. They're particularly good at winning by-elections in the Southwest, historically. The Lib Dems have never... Those things are all true, but the Lib Dems have never, ever, ever come anywhere near winning that seat, either at a by-election or a general election. It is... True. It's like Shropshire. Yeah, it's true blue Tory heartland. And on that note, because Simon is quite tired, and I think... Well, and because this podcast feels like it's gone on for like six days. And because I think my stepson's done with the ironing, so he might be watching <laughs> Morbius. Do the dishes, Cinderella. I know, most of it's his ironing. Fair enough. Um, I've been Paul Cooley. He's been Doc Luke made up, and Simon. Welcome we, back. How will you make the most of the of the remainder of Platy Jubes? Um, I'm going to go and see some friends tomorrow afternoon. That's that's oh. basically my plan. I'm going to watch England lose the cricket somehow. It's going to happen. We might as well just. I might as well just accept it. The test is that test has been so weird. I, I any, almost any outcome feels possible at this point. I am enjoying you going into cricket. We, we should all go at some point. Ne- maybe next summer. Now we should all go to Lords because me and Luke have never been to Lords or, or the Oval. I am not paying those ticket prices for love nor money. <laughs> that okay. is the problem. That is okay. the problem. Okay, you should come up to Trent Bridge and we'll do like a we'll do like a Nottingham nostalgia trip. Hmm. Anyway, on that note, talk to you in a while. Okay. Bye.